This is episode 36 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and joining me tonight is the co-host of Straight Off the Pipe with Dash and Durst, Mike Dashney, a.k.a. Dash in the Park. Dash, how's it going tonight, man? It's going awesome, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on here. It's going to be a fun time. Yeah, glad to have you on. I've been looking forward to this for a while. You know, we've got a lot to talk about tonight, including your own hockey career, as well as uh, how you joined the Heavy Hockey Network. But first, you know, we're, we're just less than a week away from the start of the regular regular season. Um, how excited are you to watch the Oilers play games that count next week? Oh, man, it's going to be so fun. I can't wait for puck drop. Um, you know, you get that anticipation at the beginning of every year where you forget about all the, uh, you know, mistakes of the past. And you've got that new found hope for the upcoming season. And, and hopefully, you know, everything is going to go well. And so I'm, I'm excited for sure. I have a few hesitations, um, you know, and, and I'm going to try and pull my reins back a little bit. But, man, super excited. How about you? I mean, I, I get excited every fall for the start of the season, but I just think that this year, especially uh, the way the playoffs ended last year, left a bitter taste in everyone's mouth. And with the upgrades that Ken Holland made to the lineup over the summer, I'm just even more excited. I think we've got a really exciting and competitive team to watch this winter. So, yeah, Wednesday can't come soon enough. Yeah, it's going to be fun for sure. It's going to be uh, just absolutely a treat to watch the way this forward group's been put together um maybe haven't seen a top nine like this in some time so i think that's going to be fun to watch we'll see how the the defensive group and and uh the band-aid in my opinion that ken holland put on the defense this year to see how it can complement but um i think ultimately our success is going to come down to whether we have a few of our young players really pick it up and and take the next step um you know guys like bouchard and holloway and um, you know, even Broberg, if he gets a shot down the road, I think players like that are really going to be the key to our season. Um, you know, even a, in a Skinner type of situation, I know, although that's probably a stretch until the next year, but that's, um, I think kind of the, the way, the road that we have paved for us and in, in mm-hmm. the way that he's, you know, spent our cap because, uh, there was some risks taken in my opinion. I think, you know, spending eight and a half or $9 million on, on a CC Keith second pairing is going to be interesting to watch and see if they can keep second line minutes and not need to be sheltered. Um, if they do, I, I don't know who fills that gap. Um, we've just got a bunch of other five and six defensemen. So that's where that Bouchard could, could mm-hmm. potentially step up and, and maybe take a, a, a new role there and, and, and shelter yeah. helps shelter some of those minutes for CC on that side. So, um, you know, I think we've got a regular season team that can make it to the playoffs. Uh, no doubt about it. I think we'll be a top two team in our division. Um, my only hesitation that I have right now before, uh, this very exciting puck drop comes is what we can do in the playoffs when we get there again. I'm a little bit, you know, a little bit stung still. Right. And, I mean, speaking of Bouchard, he has a goal tonight. As we're recording this podcast, the Oilers are still playing a preseason game against the Canucks where they're leading 3 nothing after 40 minutes. So by the time that this episode is posted, we'll know the final results of that game. But it looks like they're having a pretty good night despite McDavid and Dreisaitl staying back in Edmonton. And I'm completely fine with them taking this night off to just have a, a couple extra days to get ready for the start of the season. And to me, there's nothing to be gained for them playing. So um, I'm happy with the the way that this team is playing, despite having the two best team, two best players, I should say in the lineup tonight. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's been a fun preseason, especially at home. I think when we're racing more of our NHLers than our AHLers, we seem to be uh, 
you know, handily winning those games. Not that the teams Absolutely. are playing or icing their best NHLers either, but um, yeah, there's been some cat and mouse hockey out there that looks almost <laughs> a little bit, you know, you don't often notice when guys, you know, are out of place in the NHL. If you have the skill to play in the NHL, you you, you do. Um, but when you have guys like Dreisaitl and McDavid, who are arguably the two best players in the universe right now, you know, stick handling and trying some things out there. It's, it's, it's pretty fun, man. <laughs> yeah. But you know what, before we get into any more Oilers talk, I'd just like to hear a little bit about your own hockey background. So let's just start at the beginning. How old were you when you started playing minor hockey and what position did you play? Oh, I was, uh, I'm 45. I was born in 1976. So that's, that's the, uh, Bond senior Ryan Smith draft year. It is. Yeah. The Oilers could have drafted me instead <laughs> of Bond senior and they wouldn't have been any worse off. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I, I think I, I, you know, a lot of kids say that that had a hockey dream like me that they, you know, started skating when they were two and they played by the time they were four. I was a little bit late getting to it. So um, we, we moved around a lot when I was a kid. Um, I, I'm actually adopted. And, and by the time I was with my Dashney family that I'm still with, I um, had been around um alberta quite a bit and never really got my feet into hockey you know by the time we'd moved and chased my dad's work from um what task from breton to Wetaskiwin to lloyd minster and you know all these places i never grew feet for hockey but uh when we moved to prince albert saskatchewan my dad got a job at the paper mill there and we uh finally knew we were going to be somewhere for you know more than more than six months to 12 months and so i i begged my parents to let me play hockey and i I started when i was i don't know i guess it's seven years old i was actually going to call my mom today and ask her to be That's honest That's the same age i was when i started too yeah there you go seven or eight it was something like that and i just remember being put into like a learn to play league um but i was absolutely obsessed with um the goaltending position um you know fear was just come into the league and had a cool mask and um you know we'd seen the Gar- jerry cheevers and and the different you know with the stitches mask and i just like man that was that was kind of my initial I don't know, draw to to my young fandom. So I wanted to be a goalie. And and so I think in my learn to play season, I remember us winning a championship. And I remember having a picture of myself somewhere with the championship trophy wearing goalie pads. But um, by the time I actually got into organized hockey, I think it was now 1983, 84, kind of learn to play 84, 85 um, was my first year of novice. So it put me actually, it was fun got to go straight into novice a um which you know it's not like i didn't play hockey growing up we were always on the ponds we were always stick candling out in the streets and so i had the skill base it was just a matter of putting it all together that season and even the games i didn't play goalie i I remember even scoring a game-winning goal one time and and shot it from the top of the circles top corner thinking oh man that was just my first memory of like hey the crowd's cheering and and that was pretty cool so being enrolled in prince albert i i played my novice years there through 84 85 85 86 and uh, with the east end rangers um and then from 86 to 87 we moved um again and uh, i think it was actually the point in time in our lives when my mom just said you know what to my dad where I'm sick and tired of chasing all your work everywhere. It was the eighties, man. It was tough back then. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, basically said, you know what, we're going to live where my mom lives. So that was, you know, my grandma, my mom's mom. And <clears throat> so we moved to Winyard, Saskatchewan. And so that was kind of the uh, Prince Albert was, you know, an introduction to my Saskatchewan years, but probably a, a different type of introduction to Saskatchewan. It's obviously a small and, and quite yeah. unique city. And I've only been there in. once in my life. It's pretty small. Pretty small, you know, it's got a big yeah. reputation, but, you know, it's buried in, into, you know, the, a lot of the reserves up there. And so there's a high indigenous community, which um, growing up was, was interesting, right? I mean, I, I was the minority. So, so there were some interesting days on the playground where, you know, I, I had to learn to be tough early and yeah, I had to. So it's just, that's a tough town. You know, you talk about the Prince Alberts and the Moose Jaws and Saskatchewan and, you know those it, that's not a it's not a reputation by by fluke they're tough towns um you know i'll never forget being a kid walking down the streets of prince albert and there was a, a gang there that was called the raiders and they all wore la raiders gear and i always my dad told me like, if you ever see anybody with a raiders hat on you look down at your toes and you keep walking you know like that's so it's, it's different right so we moved to winyard saskatchewan and that's kind of when my you know true saskatchewan hockey kind of was born because uh moving to a new town i you know i wanted to play hockey again and make friends and and so that was kind of like the 87 88 year i played adam um and you know my peewee years through 88 89 89 90 um 90 91 was my first year bantam and that's where things kind of started to take off for me i guess and and where i have the most memories there's you know that chunk from basically 91 to 2001 was that 10 year chunk of hockey was so much fun and when did you make um or how long were you a goaltender or when did you switch to being a forward yeah well so i the next year when we went into organized hockey the team that i played on i remember his name too was um um Eugene, I think, or something. It was a weird name for a kid. And he uh, was the goalie that on the team that I played for. So at that point in time, I decided I was going to be a forward. You got to touch the puck the most. And um, remember my both those years, actually, uh, playing for the East End Rangers, 84, 85, 85, 86, playing on the same line with a kid named Joey Beaudry. And I don't know why. I always remembered his name because then when I moved to Winyard, I met more Beaudrys. So that name kind of followed me along, but it's funny, actually wanted to look back and it wasn't because of Joey Beaudry, but I look back at this team because I knew that I played with a couple of McNabs, like a John McNabb and and a couple of kids in, in PA at that time. And thinking back, I'm like, man, I wonder if any of those were the McNabs that made it to the NHL or made it to the even a little farther. I should go back and look at that. Well, turns out that my line mate, Joey Beaudry, was really the only kid that made it anywhere in hockey. He played a little bit of pro in the UHL and um looks like he did more fighting than he did uh did uh um scoring once he got there but that was almost like the nature of my career every team i was on i was almost always the second toughest guy you know interesting so um you know just from getting to know you a little bit too and you telling me as well right now i mean it's I think the way you describe it is you were never afraid to drop the gloves and or flatten someone with a big hit. So did that did playing a physical style just sort of always come natural to you? Huh. That's a good question. Um 
don't know if it always came natural to me. I, I never liked getting picked on. So there was that part of me when I was younger. I was never that big of a kid. Um, even now, I'm not that big of a guy at, you know, 5'10", 190 or 180 at, at best, kind of. I, you know, was not small, not big. But uh, the aggression, I think, came probably almost from an earlier age. When I was still in that Prince Albert realm, I, the, I didn't get to see NHL hockey. I got to see WHL hockey. Um, the years of 1983 to 1987 in the Prince Albert Raiders were epic. There was Terry Simpson coached that team, um, for probably six of the eight years I was there. Um, you know, that, that's a tough, tough coach. Um, guys like Dave Manson, um, Ken Baumgartner, um, Dale McPhee, Dan Hodgson, I remember watching. Um, a goalie, oh man, what was his name? Royden Gunn. I think there what was a cool... lot more fighting in the dub even back then than there is now, though, too. So that it, it seemed oh. like that's that was sort of the reputation that the Western League had, say, 20, 30 years ago. Without a shadow of a doubt, man. You look at some of like the, those stats from those teams, there was four, five, six guys that had over 100 penalty minutes. Um, you know, you look at some Oilers tiebacks like uh, Reed Simpson, uh, Manny Viveros was one of the best defensemen I ever watched play when I was a kid. Emmanuel Viveros, he went by that time. But man, he, he had he would had 100 point seasons as a defenseman. I remember watching Coffee and thinking like Viveros was the next Coffee because of right. the way he played back then. And I still like carry that to this day. Um, I remember, I'll never forget that goalie's name, Royden Gunn, because just like what a cool name for a goalie. <laughs> um, but those teams not only had Manson and Baumgartner, but Reed Simpson and Rich Pilon and Darren Kimball. And man, there was killers, like killers on those teams. Dave Manson, if you saw him today, he still looks like he could kill you. Well, even it, in the 90s when like I was the, a kid. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say he looks like the Terminator. Yeah. I mean, when I first started going to Blades games as a as a kid in the 90s, I mean, there were there were guys like Wade Belak and Steve McIntyre. So like these these huge yeah. guys, you know, who were, you know, had the reputation as fighters. Right. And it was just uh, that was the Western Hockey League back then. And now they've really tried to limit fighting, especially at the junior level. And I think that we're going to see that even more. Uh, at the NHL level as time goes on. But for right now, yeah, it's, you can't even compare what what uh, junior hockey was like, is, say, even 25 years ago compared to today. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, the, the Dansbury Trashers documentary is hot and popular <laughs> right. right now. And I, I watched that and I'm like, yep, that's how it was. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's exactly what it looked like when I went to a Raiders game. Um, you know, they're like Dan Hodgson, man, in 83 to 85 or whatever it is. He, he got like, I want to say 360 points in two years. Fact check me. Like, it's it's crazy. He, he was nuts. 170, 180 point seasons. And he was still getting almost right. 100 pims himself. Like Dale McPhee had 100 points and 100 pims. So that was the kind of guys that I wanted to model myself after. And so, you know, we moved to Winyard and I was always like a tough-ish kid. Um, and it wasn't really until bantam that i had a bit of a growth spurt in between my bantam first year and bantam second year so that really allowed me to take that role on and be effective at it in my second year of bantam but i remember my first year bantam 
as maybe one of the <clears throat> most uh, developmental and memorable hockey seasons of my entire life. We we so when you're in Saskatchewan, you probably know this being one of us. Um, you. 1,500 people, you know, the 1,200 people sometimes. It depended. Winyard's the chicken capital of Canada, so they had a lily, Lilydale plant on Main Street, and really the po- well, population fluctuated based on how much help Lilydale needed. I've only been there, like I said, one time in my life. I went with uh, my best friend. His dad was living out there at the time, and um, we basically uh, just drove into the town, went to the dad's house, and then later went back to Saskatoon. So really, I have no experience there at all and, and don't remember much other than seeing i think two churches on the same block <laughs> yeah right down from the ukrainian hall yeah, that's yeah. you nailed it that's where it is and there's a kfc of course because it's the chicken capital of canada um yeah so driving that you'd have you know hit kandahar right before winyard which is a whole nother story but let's not do there i've also got a wade belak tie-in for you later on if you uh, remember those days okay. in the past um because this team i'm about to tell you about so y- you can imagine in a town of 12 to 1500 there, there's only like my graduating class only had 30 people 30 some people right or whatever it was so maybe it was 50, 40 some people let's call it 45 people in my graduating class so on average there's going to be 20 some guys and 20 some girls let's call right. it 20 and 20 to have 20 guys your age you know and then 20 guys in the grade below you you know have half of them each play hockey that's 10 and 10 well that's a hockey team right and that that means half of your grade has to play hockey basically just to ice a team well not only did we ice a team we we iced a team like for the ages of monsters actually um so my my first year bantam uh we played with some guys obviously they're a year older than me because it was my first year but i break down that team and like tons of these guys if not all of them are still very good friends of mine today but there's you know one two three 15 of us on this team and of the 15 of this team our captain was Jared Skolnick. Um, he looked like I referenced Terminator earlier. He was <laughs> he was the only guy that started lifting weights when he was seven. Jeez. And I'm not I wish I was kidding. Like he lift hay, hay bales over his head when he was 12. And like he just was an absolute, you know, you, you you didn't look at that guy and know that he didn't work out. And this was, you know, I'm in my first year Bantam. He's second year Bantam. So you guys aren't that ripped when they're 15 usually right and and he was he was and not to mention six foot two six foot three probably um and he was a year older than me we had greg harvey as an assistant captain on that team um harv was my age and also six foot three probably 200 pounds at that time um after playing that year with us um went and uh, went on and played in straight in the whl um our other assistant captain brent dyke um uh, again probably six one at that time almost 200 pounds um and then stefan olofsson a, a, a really good friend of mine another t- still to this day a friend of mine um went on to go play triple a and in the sjhl and that's my weed b-lock tie-in um cory babby went on to go play in i think a cup of coffee and maybe weyburn red wings and then i think he played with the kindersley clippers at some point in time um 
a couple of scrubs from from Winyard that you know never made it past, which is okay because that's on every team. And then three guys that were brothers, they were the Latoskis, almost like real life Hansons, Shane and Trevor. And <laughs> those guys were, I'm not even kidding. Like, in fact, if you went to a party in Winyard, Saskatchewan today, Trevor Latoski might still be there sucking down a room, <laughs> room temperature bohemian and trying to fight somebody. Like, it, it's crazy so... to a bat. Sorry, I was just saying, no, it's no, so go crazy ahead. It's crazy. Ba- when you're playing bantam hockey, the the difference in sizes of of kids it's it's really at that age some some players are so much more developed than others it's it's almost unfair like i can remember uh my when i was in grade 9 our bantam team won cities that year and um i was about just maybe a hair under 6 feet tall at the time and like 130 pounds and compare yeah. compare that to there's there's other kids who were, you know, five ten, two hundred pounds, like you said, or there could be a kid on my team who's five foot seven and weighs maybe a hundred and ten pounds. Like at that age, there there are still some kids who are just so much ahead in in terms of their their just their growth, and and maybe the other kids will catch up later on in midget. Or, or they're not just going to get that big at all. But it's just, at that age, there can be such an unfair advantage. And from the sounds of it, you had some pretty big guys on your team. So I'm sure that was uh, an advantage, especially when the games got physical. Oh, man. And you talk about how I learned that style. And, like, it all kind of ties to this year. Because not only did I grow up, you know, loving the Mansons and the Baumgartners, you know, I get two or three years into my Winyard career when i move here and and these are the guys that i'm playing with now and you know you, you talk about that gap well yeah i was that guy that caught up later because i was barely 14 and some of these guys were almost 16 right so you know me having a january birthday i was really <clears throat> so you know i look back at that team jared skolnick ended up going on and playing with uh the yorkton maulers and triple a midget and then had a two or three year career in the sjhl with the yorkton terriers fighting his way through the entire th- time greg harvey went on straight to the pa raiders played there at age 17 18 19 he beat so many guys up in prince albert that they used to play hammer time by mc hammer every time that his gloves <laughs> hit the ice seriously he was a defenseman he'd come up and like take the wing and everybody knew exactly what was going to happen the Doom. arena dj just Doom. had that song ready to go hammer time yeah and, boom. <laughs> and there it went greg the hammer harvey brent deck dyke went on to go play um after this season um two three years perhaps with the triple a midget pat canadians in regina um and then had a pretty fruitful ciau career um stefan olison that i referenced earlier after the season went on to go play triple a midget with the contacts with the blazers i can't remember which one and and uh was a 16 year old um signee of this of the saskatoon blades and you know as as the rules still state you know if you're 16 you can only play so many games what is it eight games is the max in the whl at that year which i think he played if i'm not mistaken um and then i think his 17 year old year went into the camp um and so my friend Stefan, like when we played uh, Bantam together, was probably six foot four. I don't know if he ever peaked out at six five or, or something. But you know, at six four, one ninety in in Bantam. By the time he played AAA midget and SJHL or was trying out for this WHL team, he's probably six four, two ten, and uh, scrapped Wade Belak a couple of times. Um, wow. And and 
the, his fights with Wade Belak. I remember him coming back home to Winyard and, and telling me about like these guys that he had to fight in camp because we had the same types of stories, right? He was going on to uh, try out for these teams at the same time. I was also trying out for AAA teams and, and a WHL team. And, you know, him telling me about his stories of the guys he had to fight. And I'll tell you about the stories of the guys I had to fight in my AAA midget and camps and guys that went on to go be monsters. But he fought Wade Belak and came home and said, if I got to do this for the rest of my life, I'm not sure what kind of future I'm going to have. And literally, I remember him talking about that. And from that decision on that, he didn't want to be a fighter, even though he held his own in that fight and did just fine um decided he wanted to go and play in the sjhl so he went and played for the tisdale trojans instead and had a pretty decent you know almost a point of game player and still got to drop his gloves and one of those guys that could kill you on the score sheet or or with his fists and and you know maybe that's stefan's butterfly effect moment right and if he comes home and decides ah whatever i'm willing to do whatever it takes and i don't care if i get my head beat in and you know we didn't know a lot about concussions then but good forethinking on his part you know and i you know rest in peace mr belak you know but mm-hmm. ultimately nobody wishes that on anyone and no. so my friend stefan's now a you know a teacher in in stetler and good on him right like he's got a great career and beautiful daughters and and uh you know, so probably made the right decision. Absolutely. Um, Let's so talk a little. Those those guys are what made me want to play with truculence. No, for sure. And uh, I know you played some junior B here in Saskatchewan in the early '90s as well. So let's talk a little about that now. Um, how how did you first hear about the opportunity to go to this camp, and did you think you had a good chance to make the team? <laughs> I don't remember how I heard about it, to be honest. That's a good question. I'd have to go. I probably heard it on the radio or something. Who knows? Um, ultimately, I, that year after Bantam um, was when I knew I played my second year Bantam after all those guys moved on to go play their SJ and WHL seasons. And then I was a second year player on our team. And then I got to fill that role and be what those guys were for, for me. And, and I had my growth spurt in between those Bantam years, kind of like that 1991 time. So I, I went from being the five foot eight, 130 pounder to the five foot 10, 190 pounder. And you know, that's not huge, but I did okay. Um, and I just, my, probably my biggest downside is I wasn't scared of anything. So I, I went to camps at that age as well. I, you know, when my friends went and I also tried out for the Yorkton Maulers and AAA midget, I tried out for the Saskatoon Blazers and the contacts. I think I still have my Blazers con- jersey actually. Oh, nice. I tried out for the Regina Pack Canadian AAA team. And I remember trying out for the Victoria Cougars at the time whl team in fact there's a funny story i had a pretty that was probably that whl was my only dub camp i ever got invited to and went to it was probably the best camp i had and i fought a guy there named jesse Razanzoff, who ended up going and playing in uh yorkton with the maulers and the and the terriers and i ended up fighting him again in the midget camp but anyways um i do okay against him he's about six foot five i'm about five foot ten thinking i'm pretty good about myself and i just got my driver's license about nine days before this camp and i remember hopping in my dad's truck and i pull out of the parking lot and sure enough i didn't just tick the car beside me as i was backing out and now i'm young and dumb and stupid and you know just past my driver's license well it's small town saskatchewan it doesn't matter there's only 1200 people i'm just gonna go and grab my slurpee that i was really looking forward to after the game i'll go home and tell my dad what happened 
Well, by the time I had driven to go and get my Slurpee and already gotten home, somebody saw me in the parking lot, reported me to the RCMP, oh, who's my dad's best friend, and <laughs> Sergeant Rick Warbanski sitting on my couch with my dad. By the time I get home from my Slurpee and get home, what are you doing? You got a hit and run. Oh, my God. No, I didn't do a hit and run. What are you talking about? I just came to tell you that. Oh, sure, you did. No, I did. I just, uh, anyways. So it turns out the car I hit was the coach of the Victoria Cougars. So oh. needless to say, I probably didn't have much of a shot at making the team after I hit and ran his car in the in the parking lot. So yeah. Anyways, that was one of my fun camp stories. Um, trying out for the Maulers was was a crazy time. They had an absolute barn burner team. They won the national championship that year. But again, I fought Rizans off again for round two in that camp. I also fought a guy named Lee Rusnak who was built like a brick shit house. And he ended up going on to be their goon as well as made the Terriers the years after and was their goon for years after. He was the first lefty I ever fought and I still have scars on my lip right now. I can, will never forget the name Lee Rusnak because of what he's done to the lip on my right side of my body. But um, first time I ever got stitched up on a on a bench without freezing because I hate needles. And I asked the trainer, they said, you're going to need stitches in that one. We're going to send you a to the hospital for the stitches in Yorkton. I'm like, no, come on. I don't want stitches. That, that's fine. I'll be well, we need to freeze it up then. And I said, well, how many needles is it going to take to freeze it? And he said, well, it's going to take three. And I said, well, how many stitches do you think it's going to take to close it? He said, ah, it's about four. Oh, I, I'll take the extra needle for the hospital ride. Just do it right here. So literally just sewed me up on the bench. Um, coach liked it. Um, almost made the team. Um, might have made the team we had one more camp to go but i went back to winyard and i was pissing around with my friends playing football and playing football i tore my mcl acl and my pcl Ugh. at the same time like absolutely obliterated my knee like dante culpepper did with the minnesota vikings back in the day i think so i, I can, remember that now, <laughs> it, it's like now that you say bad. that Ruined his career and ruined mine. You know, you talk about Stefan's butterfly effect moment, whether he could have made the NHL while he fought Belak and thought otherwise. For me, that was probably, you know, I'm that typical guy that thought he could have made it and, you know, eventually would have worked his way there. But then that one injury derails you. And, well, that was a pretty good one. And it was pretty much the end of me ever thinking I could move on anything past that. So in a long way to answer your question, um, I had to miss most of that first year of midget hockey because I was in a cast for six months, let alone the the rehab and the physio and everything that came after that. So I, I never went to Yorkton. I never played for the Maulers. I watched them from my couch win a national championship and wanted to punch myself in the dick every minute of it because it was so <laughs> much jealousy brewing up inside of me. So... The next year's starting, and I had actually started high school a year early in my life. So it's 1993. Um, I've got a year of midget left, but I've already graduated high school. So I moved to Regina to chase a girl because that's what you do when you're 17 years old. Mm -hmm. So I moved to the big city of Regina. I'm living with my aunt and uncle. I'm working at Canadian Tire. I'm, I'm working in the at bootlegger selling jeans. Um, you know, you take your resume through the mall and find whatever jobs you can. And that's what I found, but I needed to play hockey and I didn't know how I was going to play hockey in the big city of Regina when I was dating a girl that I liked and she was still in grade 12 and in Regina. So I kind of was living a second grade 12 almost. 
um, but needed some sports to play. So I, I to answer your question, don't know how I found out about the Capitals, but they're an expansion team in 1992 or 1993. And then I was, was there for the second year of their franchise. So I, I went to camp and I tried out to, did I think I would make the team? Um, I don't know. I'd had a year off of hockey. Um, if you'd asked me the year before when I was, you know, coming out of my second year Bantam and that I was going to play junior B, yeah, I would have told you I'd have crushed in junior B. Um, so I, I wasn't sure if I was going to make that team, but I was three days into camp, um, and knew that I wasn't going to make the team. <laughs> so I, I made a decision, which leads to a pretty good story. If you want me to tell it, actually, the way yeah, I actually making that team, but so, okay. So, all right. So I'm 17 years old. I have to get special permission from the league to, to play in this because it's an 18, 19, 20 year olds league. Um, you know, this isn't the WHL where they bring in guys when they're 16 or whatever. It doesn't make, doesn't make sense. Guys are still playing their AAA or they're doing whatever. So I go and try out for this expansion junior B team. And we were, um, three days into camp. Uh, it was the last exhibition game of camp. Uh, the final cuts were being made after that game. Um, maybe I could have held around as a, like a 13th forward or something like that. I, I wasn't sure I I'd scored a few goals. Like I thought I did. Okay. I laid a few big hits, but you know, and sometimes you, you don't grow up there and they don't know who you are. They'll pick their, their local kid too sometimes. Right. And so for me, I, I wasn't sure. Um, but I'll tell you what, in that moment in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, when it was our final exhibition game and it was the second intermission and I was looking around the room and I was trying to read their faces. I was trying to look at the coach and I just in my gut thought I wasn't going to make it. I just like, I couldn't get the coach to look me in the eye. And <clears throat> so, you know, expansion junior B team, you want to talk about the WHL 25 years ago. Well, 30 years ago, well, the junior B in Saskatchewan wasn't much different 20 years ago. And there was a ton of fighting. I had the nickname jungle B for a reason. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I, you know, I'm 17 years old. I got my special permission from the league to, to try out. <clears throat> and, and sure enough, I'm, I'm in intermission and the guy sitting beside me, his name was Kevin Digney. He was the captain of that, that team, the Regina Capitals. And he was one of the tougher guys on the team. I could just tell by the way he carried himself and the big th hits he was throwing and, in the camp games that we'd played. And I think maybe he'd even dropped the flippers with somebody and absolutely annihilated them. And I just remember somebody on the bench going, Oh boy, this is going to be bad for whoever diggers fighting this night. So I said to him in the dressing room, like, what do you think I got to do to make this team? And he's, you know, he said, well, it's, it's too late to score a hat trick. So you, you might as well, you might as well go and try and fight somebody. <laughs> so, so we get out to the start, the drop of the third period and, and I'm still on the bench. I'm not starting the third, but <clears throat> I'm beside, I'm the, I'm third line out and Digger was a defenseman. So he was beside me and I said, okay, which give me a number, like who should I fight? So, you know, not knowing I was so naive at the time that he was actually probably trolling me, but he points out to a guy whose name you know, lived up to his reputation, Tyler Large, and says, I think he should fight that guy. Well, in hindsight, I don't know this at the time, but he's like the South Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League, like heavyweight champion. He, he was the toughest guy in, in all of Junior B in the last two years. And he's like, you should go and fight him. 
and I don't know any different. I thought, okay, sure, that sounds great. So <laughs> next face-off, I'm out there for, I think actually their team scored, and it made it a two-goal jump for them or a three-goal jump for them. And and I said, well, there's the, this is perfect. This is when they would want me to fight. Um, and I was a right winger, and he was also a right winger. So if you think of the center ice face-off, we're on the opposite sides of the ice, right? So I uh, I look at my left winger and he was just happened to be beside me on the other side of me on the bench and heard my entire conversation with Digger. So he just winks at me. And so we switch sides. It's just like out of the movie Slapshot, right? You know, it's this whole staged fight. And I do my little dance over to the other side. And Tyler Large looks at me and he goes, what the fuck are you trying to pull here? And I just kind of was like, oh, well, I would like to try and make this team. And if there's any chance that you could give me a a bit of a go here i'd i'd really appreciate it and he quite literally looked at me and said and this was before happy gilmore and so the line in happy gilmore always stuck with me but he literally said he'd shit bigger than me and so if i wasn't as witty as happy gilmore was to say he'd shit for breakfast but i did kind of <laughs> think to myself well he doesn't want to fight me so now what am i going to do the pocket dropped and their team won the face off so it went back to their defenseman so he kind of curled away to go and probably loop and pick up a pass to go into our end and when he did the 180 degree turn to go loop back to get his pass from his defenseman i took two hands on the butt of my stick and i tomahawk two hand chopped him across the back of the ankles as hard as i fuck could like i just absolutely smashed the backs <laughs> of his legs and he turned around and looked at me with that the probably rage got his attention Oh man, like he had the rage in his eyes of Dave Semenko. I thought I was going to die. It, it was something out of, so this fight, dude, I'm not even telling you, we end up at their net and this happens at center ice. Like we are dancing, like absolutely throwing each other around. He's rat ragdolling me. Like he can't land a punch, but he can't keep me down for some reason. And he keeps trying to, I know he doesn't want to fight me. And looking back, he probably didn't want to break his hand or, you know, waste any time with me. He just wanted to get me to the ice and he couldn't, but that low center of gravity I had, I fought like Ty Domi and I watched him fight when I was a kid. And so like, it was kind of something I modeled and, I, for some reason, in our little dance, got his fighting strap to snap off, like his button that held down right. his jersey in the back. And I heard it and I felt it pop. And there was that hesitation where he kind of went, oh, shit. And right when he did it, I don't know what the hell came over me. Guardian Angels, whatever, jumped in for my side. And, man, I got his jersey over his head and I landed probably 14 or 15 straight uppercuts. And Tyler Large didn't know which way I was coming from. And it was absolutely awesome. He was so flipping mad at me. He threw his jersey on the ice. He hucked his, once he got his jersey that was half over his head, his elbow pads were around his wrists. He's hucking his elbow pads up into the stands, I remember. And I remember looking back at the only, I, you know, like I blacked out in a lot of my fights. I really did, except the memory I have was looking back at my bench and watching the jaws drop of my teammates. <laughs> going, you, know you just absolutely pumped the league heavyweight champion at 17 years old, kid. Go have a seat in the dressing room. You got the back of the bus tonight, buddy. So it was awesome. And sure enough, we get back to our rink in Regina at the end of the bus ride. And we have our coach in interviews with the coaches. And, and I made the team. <laughs> wow. And you know that, I mean, that's a great story. And you would know this better than I do. But, we, you know, we talked a little bit about how 
fighting was more prominent back then than it is today. But one thing that probably was rare at that time is that at any level of junior hockey, there weren't many 17-year-olds fighting 20-year-olds, for example. So the fact that you not only took on an older player, but the undisputed heavyweight champion of the league, that must have been extremely rare. Yeah, but I for sure it it absolutely was, and that that moment almost became you know a a dictator for the way the rest of my life went. Because as it turned out, that Kevin Digney, the guy that I sat beside in the dressing room and that teased me to go and fight Tyler Large, ended up being he was the head bouncer at a, a nightclub in Regina called Checkers. And uh, he literally told me later on that season, because I ended up that season, I played 15 games and I ended up fighting seven times in 15 games as a 17 year old. And not one of them wasn't against a guy that was older than me because I was the youngest guy in the league by six months. So, you know, I I just always thought in a hockey fight that it would you'd always be okay, right? There's always a ref there. And if I ever thought that I took one good one that I would just pull him by the pants and try to land on top of him and, and end the fight. And there was a few times I had to do that, but there's also a few, I didn't win as many as I, I, I didn't. I mean, I lost probably more than I won is what I'm going to say. <laughs> but that I'm sure that that must've been the most memorable fight of your entire career. Um, I don't know if it's the most memorable. It's the most memorable because of the effect that it had that I ended up making the team. You know, the, actually what the most memorable fight of my entire career was, was probably the time I also got my ass kicked the worst. Um, <laughs> you have, can I tell another JV yeah. story? <laughs> yeah. Tell another one. <laughs> okay. All right. So 15 games in the league. Um, I get in seven fights and the rules in the league at that time where you got three fights free. And then after every fight, you got suspended an additional game. So, you know, three fights free. My fourth fight was suspended one game. My fifth fight, I was suspended two games. Uh, my sixth fight, I was suspended three games and my seventh fight, which actually wasn't a fight. I was suspended for whatever the amount of games for that was. And I'll tell you about that seventh fight later. But one of the first four fights was uh, in in a town called Assiniboine. Yeah. Um, I want to call there. Where were they? The Southern Rebels or something like that. Um, pig farming community. Um, known for its agriculture. Um, maybe South they're a Humboldt, tough town. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think like that whole you know Humboldt, Munster, Assiniboine area. Like there's like that's there's something in the water there too, man. Those are <laughs> tough guys. And so we roll in. Okay. So the key to this here is that it's Halloween night. All right. And we roll into Assiniboine, Saskatchewan with this gang of, we might as well have been the movie Slapshot. Like there was at least seven of us that would drop the mitts at any given time. It was um, brouhaha night after night after night. Like I said, we're an expansion team the year before. So that's how we'd figured out that we could win games was to bully guys. And and it was right. working. Like we really only had two guys that was could score um Aaron Demeray and Kelly Tomlinson and Tomlinson was good he was just I don't know he loved loved his booze and loved partying and didn't bring it all the time and Aaron Demeray only had one eye for crying out loud he would have probably made it to the NHL if he had both of his eyes he was absolutely the moves he could pull off were unbelievable and just all of a sudden he would get hit on his blind side sometimes and we just thought he might never get up anyways that's another story um, so we, you know, had to intimidate guys. Well, we weren't going to intimidate a Cinnaboyne that night and their captain was a defenseman and I don't, he was bigger than me. I don't remember, but he, 
just another one of these guys that was not easy for me to handle on the ice. I almost, I almost liked fighting the tall, lanky guys or guys my size. I, I didn't like the those mid guys that were stronger and could stronger than me and could be as fast as me. Um, as well as those thicker guys were hard to get off their skates as well. And I relied on my center of gravity and my low center of gravity. But this night, man, was Halloween. And we roll in there. And I don't know how rude I can be on this podcast. Let's just say that there was a lot of slanderish comments being thrown into the stands and from the stands. Um, well, I always we'll, tried to... we'll keep, we'll keep most of them out. Let's, let's do that for the audience. But... <laughs> I tried to not engage in that stuff anyways, right? It was always, I was worried about the guys on the ice, not the people in the stands, but you know, there was a lot of um, vulgar thrown back and forth. I remember there'd be pennies being thrown in our bench so that if we stepped on them, we'd screw up our skate blades. Um, mm. I remember some of our players doing pig calls out into the stands because they're that type of agriculture in that farming community and just like, oh man, the hatred and some of the people you could see brewing and just one of those games where the tension was building and the tension was building and uh, our coach, um, Dick, oh, what was his name? Dick Todd, Todd. He was uh, liked liked the 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 old school style. Let's just say, and I think we were down a goal late, and uh, he he asked me to run the goalie, and and so I I did what the coach <laughs> told me to, and and honestly, from the face off, I was the left, and I pushed the defenseman, and I just bull rushed him right into the goalie. This defenseman's a huge dude. He's the captain of their team. He fell back on the goalie. I don't think anybody got hurt. I don't remember it. I just remember him picking me up out of the pile, taking my helmet off for me, and just like absolutely ragdolling me from hash mark to hash mark. And by the time I had my wits about me and the refs absolutely broke us up, and I don't even think I got my arms out of my sides, to be honest. And I look over the ref's shoulder and everybody on our team is fighting. Our goalie's fighting. All four other guys on our team are fighting. This is full out junior jungle B line brawl. Regina, Capitals, Assiniboine, Southern Rebels, 11 guys with, 22 gloves on the ice, absolutely hammering each other. The things that I saw in that fight, I barely want to repeat, like a visor that came down (laughs) on a guy's nose and like the blood splatters and the stuff on the ice. And man, it was just like fueled from hatred. I was a jackass to run their goalie. The defenseman knew it. I deserved everything I got from him, everything I got from him and probably more. And all 11 of us get not at well, all six of us get s- escorted off the ice. And it's a weird rink in a Cinnaboyne where you could go from the ice surface to your dressing room and then a small hallway from your dress, sorry, to your bench, and then a small hallway from your bench to the dressing room. And then the dressing room actually had a, you know, one of those steel doors that had straight to the outside. It was an exit. So we could actually like load our bus and unload our bus like straight into the dressing room from from this back door. So the six of us get booted out of this game and we're um, in the dressing room and having our showers and talking about all our, you know, fighting extravaganda we just finished off with and licking Mm -hmm. our wounds. Or I was licking my wounds anyways. (laughs) 
And we get dressed and our assistant coach came in, who was the coach's son. Man, I want to remember what their last name was. He played in the WHL and fought his way through the WHL. And his dad's an old school guy. So these are the guys who are coaching us. And remember, his name was Dick and his kid's name was Todd. I just can't place my name on their last name. But so Todd is in the dressing room with us. And we all of a sudden start to hear like some noise and some scatter in behind the steel door. And we start realizing we are an inch and a half away from a, a mob. Where we are in our dressing room thinking, holy shit, the game is still going on inside the arena. There's like a minute and a half left. We've all showered up. We've got most of our equipment packed up, our suits back on. And we're thinking we're about to go and start loading the bus. I I like start envisioning a group of people with pitchforks and, and burning hay. Like, what the <laughs> hell? Are, they're screaming at us like they're going to kill us. Like, I'm not a word of a lie. The same vulgarity that was going and thrown on the ice was being thrown through our door. And like, we are literally one deadbolt away. They're telling us. I'm, we're dead. We I'm sure you would have been more scared at that moment than you were when you had to fight a large. <laughs> Yeah, it was for sure. There's no doubt about it. And then, you know, the rest of our team game ends, they pile in, they shower, they, but by this time, now we know that this is like, well, we don't know what to do. So actually our coaches have already called the RCMP. So they've kind of come and we've peeked out the door to like, see what's going on. you can see this, you know, the cherries on the RCMP vehicles and the blue and red lights. And we can see angry people and we can see our bus and Todd, looks at me i don't know why i was the idiot that was first out behind todd i just probably couldn't stop watching a car accident so i just wanted to like look outside too dumb and naive to realize i could i get my head punched in but i just wanted to see it happen so we um all kind of just said screw it let's go to the bus and we jumped out and we did not realize there's about 150 people that wanted to kill us. We think, we think there was like 20, 30. Like they literally ha- piled a quarter of the arena out into the back and were waiting for us to kick our asses. So it became, we got rushed. Like we got rushed by dozens of people to the point where I said I was right behind Todd. He grabbed my stick and he starts swinging my stick like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like <laughs> trying to like swath a path that we could walk to our bus he did not give a shit who he hit. he did not hit anybody for the record they were smart enough to all back off and then the police were still there and we got ourselves onto our to our bus and we got a police escort out of town for about 50 kilometers to they wow. made sure it was following and the entire way out of the parking lot halloween night we must have got hit by about 500 eggs I wouldn't doubt it. I'm surprised they didn't throw anything else other than eggs at the bus. Oh, there, there probably was. I mean, it all sounds the same when you're on the inside and you're ducking yeah. in the turtle position. But yeah, man, that was um, that was the most memorable fight I was ever in in junior. Wow. Eight. Well, I appreciate those two stories. And listen, if if you ever come back on the podcast, and you're always welcome to, I hope you will. Um, we got to hear a couple more stories. But for now, let's just move on a little bit from uh, Junior B. So after your your stint with the Capitals was done, uh, where did your career go from there? Yeah, probably the same as every other kid that didn't make it in Saskatchewan. Um, I got because of the rules that I told you about for the suspensions, and I said I'd tell you about my seventh fight later. It was like a phantom fight, and I wore number nine. Uh, but one of our best players, Jason Dittman, wore number eight. And uh, that 15th game was the last game in November. 
Um, there was a fight at center ice, which I was not involved in. I think I might have even been on the bench. No, maybe I was on the ice. I don't know if I was good enough to be on the ice with Dippin. <laughs> Anyways, there the fight happens. The referee calls out the numbers for who's going to the box, and he calls out, well, of course he'd say me. Why wouldn't he say me? Look at my history in the league. And he gives number nine five for fighting, and he doesn't give anything to number eight. Well, that would have been Dittman's fourth fight, and he would have been suspended for two games. So my coach says, I'm going to, like, I'm trying to pile over to the ref and tell him, no, 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 you got the wrong number. You got the wrong number. And my coach basically horse calls him. Oh, no, no. Number nine. You got it right. That's that's who was in that fight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Number nine. I was like, ah, f- all right. I how'd it. you feel about that? Well, it's whatever. It's the team and I get it. And bitter is more important than I ever was. And <laughs> the shitty thing that happened is you didn't realize at the time, but we actually only played like four games in December because a lot of guys are in university. So they're doing finals and then it's Christmas. You don't play a lot around there and New Year's. Right. So we actually only had like four or five games in December. And so the fact that I was now suspended for four or five games because of my phantom seventh fight, um, the team basically caught me. They're like, like, you're not going to be able to play for all of December. Um, by the time we actually get you back, it's going to be the second week in January. And our goalie that year, I just remembered this. Our goalie that year was deaf. And he, which is actually wow. a whole nother interesting, you know, talk about guys that are half blind, a goalie that can't hear a whistle is interesting because a whistle goes sometimes and he can't hear it. And he goes chasing the puck at a hundred miles an hour thinking that he's still playing. We're all like coasting back to the bench and we look over and he's, you know, well, just still, your, still your ability to read and react <laughs> to the play. I think just even your ability to read and react to plays, I think would be harder if you couldn't hear the sounds on the ice. W- without a shadow of a doubt. That said, he was awesome. And he got uh, recruited to go and play on the national team for like the deaf and blind games that year or something. And so because we lost our goalie, they needed to find um, another one. And so they used his spot as well as my spot to go and grab a couple of guys because they were just having a hard time filling a full-time spot. So um, a guy that ended up becoming a friend of mine down the road, Dougie ended up taking the one spot and then another goalie they ended up getting. So that's, that was it. I got cut at Christmas. I was, uh, I was upset for sure. Like that was, you know, I realized that was my shot. Um, you know, I wasn't going to play junior if I can't, if I got cut from a junior B expansion team, like that's, you know, a pretty slap of reality. But at the same time I was, um, let go from bootlegger because I was basically just hired as their Christmas rush, like, or whatever. So yeah. it was January. I, um, was bored. I, you know, got cut from the hockey team. I lost one of my jobs. My hours at Canadian tire were dwindling. And so I said, screw it. And I went back and I just wanted to play hockey. So I went and moved back to Winyard. And so even though a lot of the guys that I played with were still in their grade 12 year, um, I had finished high school early, but I went and just finished that year of midget with them. And it ended up being one of the funnest years of our lives as well. But I had said earlier about all those guys that moved on, you know, Scully and Harv and, and Oli, and we didn't have enough players to nice a team anymore. Right. You, you only got so many players to choose from in a small town. And when half of them all go on and play major or minor junior, it's a pretty good ratio, but we needed to fill back the rest of the team. So we joined up with a fo- foam lake, which is a uh, down the road from Winyard and the the Foam Lake Winyard Jets were born um and they had mucked their way through the half way of the season and were I think second or third in the league um 
they had five very good forwards, like very good forwards. And a couple of two or three stay-at-home defensemen, nobody that ever really joined the rush, nobody that ever flared offense and we had an average goalie so we had kind of like the oilers <laughs> just like you know some average-ish defensemen some average-ish goalies and some really good forwards and we played um that last uh so I, I i go and joined them just to finish the rest of the year just so i could play hockey and it ended up being really fun we actually went all the way to southern saskatchewan uh provincial finals and played um oh man canora and delisle and um some big clubs along the way bruno and <clears throat> we I remember the one game we're down the second round of provincials and we were down seven or eight goals. Back then provincials was two game total points. So you'd go into one teams, like we'd go into Wadena for the first round and we beat them, you know, whatever it was, nine, seven. Well, that means they're playing the second game in Winyard with it down two, right? So they've got to, they've got to win that game by at least two goals in order to win the two game total point. And I remember we were down three goals, I think, against Delisle. And then we come back and we'd shit the bed in Winyard too. And it was um, after the second or after the first period, I want to say, we were down another three goals. So between the first game and now the first two periods of this game, we're down a total of six. And our coach decided at that point in time to go with two lines. And... As it turned out, in hindsight, we look back with 2020 vision. He never played one of those other forwards again for the rest of provincials. And we oh, rolled wow. two, we rolled two lines for for four or five rounds of provincials as well as two or three rounds. We went all the way to the final in the league, and then we went all the way to the semifinal in provincials. And that team was fun, man. We had, you know, Ryan Peterson and Corey Babby and Devin Scalney playing on our production line and I have some stats from back then, like 35 games. Petey had 107 points. You know, Babby's his winger. He's 24 games. He's got 61 points. Um, and so I joined these, this team, and I remember that decision after the end of the second period. Our coach, Larry Karkachuk, said that I was going to play up with the Foam Lake boys. And so I played with two guys named Curtis Bullich and Darwin Chappelle. And uh, looking back at their stats, Darwin played 33 games that year and had 78 points. Uh, Curtis played 32 games and had 76 points. So I kind of like Bantam and Midget numbers. That's right. That's right. So I or Connor McDavid playing against the NHL. Or just yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. Um, no, Ryan Peterson was no Connor McDavid, and he'd be the first to admit that. <clears throat> So with the stats in front of me again, I come in, I only play 16 games. Most of those guys played 32, 33, 34. In mean, 16 games, I ended up with 18 goals, 20 assists, and 38 points in 16 games. And it's Not playing with the two foam like boys. So me and Darwin and, and Curtis basically just absolutely blow through everybody that we could. We're all big guys. We're all aggressive. Uh, I'd learn they were two, three inches taller than me, but I was the one that just came back from playing junior and fighting guys that were... 220 230 pounds so i felt invincible hardest part for me was getting used to wearing a full cage again from wearing a half visor for the whole first half of the year right so it took a couple of games for me to get used to that and and then once they put me up with those two guys we rolled all the way and so yeah it was the end of that i you know that was my midget um unfortunately we lost in the league final and the semi-final for provincials i think we lost to kenora in both cases but 
Um, again, just one of the funnest years. I remember having those those games. We had line brawls in midget. We had that rink popping when we were down seven goals against Delisle. We came back in that third period once Larry put me up on that line and we scored eight goals in the third period. I never felt that rink rock like that before and we we fed off of it and so then we went two more rounds basically doing the exact same thing with these big massive comebacks in the third periods and just like line brawls in midget it was man it was crazy it was so 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 much fun in fact i remember one of the games in wadena we were uh, still dressing in the at the end of the game and some of the guys were already dressed and done and taking their equipment out to the vehicles but some of the fans were so upset because there was a line brawl in Wadena that I started again and in fact going back and looking at the old articles in the newspaper because we put together a little binder after that year and and I went back and read some of it and it said that the guy that did the article in the newspaper said that we won all five all five fights on the ice were were one handily by the Winyard team <laughs> So I remember that line brawl and I remember the guy even from Wadena that I beat up that night um, and his friends were yelling at me the entire third period like they were going to do something bad to me as well. But I had a guy on our team that looked almost like us. He was injured. He wasn't playing. Um, I think Jason Awarko, his name was. And uh, he wasn't playing that night because he was injured, but he was maybe helping us carry our equipment or something like that. And he looked a lot like me. And um, he went to go take somebody's bag out and the guys from Wadena jumped him because they thought that he was me. So they're kicking the shit out of Jason Awerko three on one outside the Wadena Memorial Arena yelling, screw you, Dashney. <laughs> so it causes a ruckus. And uh, unfortunately for these three kids, Jason Awerko's dad was uh, born in um, German, Eastern Bloc, Germany. Um, and had hands like frying pans and me and Jason were the same size, but old Eugene was about six, two, and he grabbed these kids by their heads and shook them around and threw them like he was the incredible Hulk and everybody just left that old man's <laughs> German strength came through and that was that, but, um, so fun, fun year going that way. And basically from there, I just played, um, senior hockey. It was, uh, from the time I was, a second year bantam i was already being called up for the senior team as an affiliated player in winyard so with the winyard monarchs in the fishing lake hockey league i i ended up playing probably five years with the winyard monarchs because of the midget years that i played up as well as the first few years i did move back to regina after that hockey um fun that we had through the provincials i was still dating that same girl uh left back to regina she finished her grade 12 year and we started our university careers together and so from there i was just you know bouncing at checkers just like kevin digney said and i also bounced at the regina uh, university bar the lazy owl uh, i also bounced at another place called lauderdale's that ended up becoming metro um so yeah the the fist still flew um again never being that toughest guy just never really being scared to back down either i guess and ultimately dumb enough to never say no um so that reputation as being not only a bouncer and you know at the university bar it got me probably a tryout with a couple of senior leagues um closer to regina so instead of driving the hour and a half to two hours back to winyard to play and then sometimes if you're playing in kalahar or you're playing in 
Wadena or Foam Lake, you add another hour to the other side of Winyard. And it's like a two and a half hour drive and I got to be at school at eight in the morning. You know, it got oh, pretty yeah. tough. So um, halfway through the 97, 98 year, um, a guy that I was in class with, Scott Parks, his brother, Bill Parks, was playing for the Dysart Blues. So 1997, 98, I, I got asked to basically, if I was interested in playing senior hockey for them and getting paid as an import, because each team got three imports that aren't for four imports or whatever from that town. So Bill Parks was probably pulling in 100 or 150 a game to uh, go out and play defense for these guys and said that he would give up 25 bucks of his game if they would throw in another 25 and pay me 50 bucks a game to come out and and play so i was uh probably the lowest paid import in the league because most of these guys get like 100 150 200 bucks a game i don't know what it's like now but that's you know decent money back in the university even 50 bucks was good for me i think i negotiated free gas as well um and so i played with the dysart blues in the highway hockey league and i got seven games in that year um i don't i don't think i scored that many i had maybe three or four points in seven games um but i remember getting what i do remember about it is in those seven games i got three majors and three minors (laughs) and and in every situation they didn't have the instigator penalty back then but i would have got that too because it was basically three times where i picked three fights and and ended up getting three majors um and then it's funny because you go back and look at my penalty minutes from that year online and it's 21 minutes well yeah that's that's 15 plus six <laughs> um but i i love the coach loved me peter i don't remember what the hell his name was i actually tried to google it um but if we were called the Dysart blues and i know our coach's name was peter and unfortunately if you go and try and google anything about the blues and peter right now you're dominated with peter shirelli being hired by the blues as uh, yeah. search results so peter shirelli ruining my life again <laughs> Nice tie-in. <laughs> nice tie-in. So I go back and play for Dysart for 98-99. Um, again, one of the funnest years within that decade I reference. Yeah. Um, I got to play top line. Uh, Peter played me on that top line because I got to be that muck in the corner, uh, get the guys the puck in front of the net, never back down, never lose a board battle, fight if I have to, and... I remember playing on a line with uh, Dean Roach and Kelly Marquardt. And Dean Roach was, um, um, I think he was from the Daystar 87 Reserve. Uh, he played two years, I want to say in Minot, no, Labrette. Did Labrette have an H? Yeah, Le- the Labrette Eagles, I think, for the SJHL. And yeah, they like scored, I don't know, four straight 30 goal seasons in the SJHL. Like nothing to shake a stick at. The no. kid was five foot six and 130 pounds, probably. Uh, coming off, you know, a hundred and some goals in the SJ. Um, and he went on to go play in the United Hockey League and, and had like a four or five year pro career after this as well. Um, and then Kelly Marquardt had played uh, two years at AAA Midget Pack Canadians, and he played for the Regina Pats for four years, the Saskatoon Blades for one year, and then he had a fantastic career with the University of Regina Cougars in the CIAU, where he was pretty close to a point-a-game player for four straight years. And uh, his career had just ended, and the Cougars had missed the playoffs that year, and so Kelly was available to come and play some senior hockey. So I think they gave him 200 bucks a game or something, but... I'm playing wing with Kelly Marquardt, who was tough as nails in AAA midget, let alone in the dub, let alone in the CIAU, you know, 60, 80 pims every single year, no matter what. 
me on the other wing and Dean Roach, who is one of like the most dynamic indigenous players I think I've ever seen dangle a puck in my life, but came with its downside because he was also the type of guy that would spit in your face in a scrum. <laughs> so as you can imagine in, in the highway hockey league in the back in the nineties, there you don't put up with stuff like that. So we ended up getting in no. more fights because of them than we did actually probably uh, putting the puck in the net, but still just a super fun year. I remember I got ended up hurting my knee again um, that year. It was the second time I injured my knee um, in that exact same knee, but 13 games. And I think I had 16 points or something like that. It's not too bad, um, but playing in between those guys, but I had a, I had 101 penalty minutes in 13 games. And I think like I said, the year before I had 21 penalty minutes in seven games. So well, um, it, it's like you talked about, you wanted to emulate some of these players back in the eighties that not only could contribute on the score sheet, but were racking up the, uh, the penalty minutes as well. Um, but Obviously, as you went on in your career, it sounds like you you did develop into more of a scorer than being relied on to just, you know, handle the fisticuffs like you did when you were playing Junior B. I just want to wrap up on your hockey career by saying, did you have you always continued to play men's league ever since? And do you still have the same love for the game now that you did back when you were a teenager? My love for the game will never dwindle. Um, hockey's got me where I am. It's gotten me a lot of places in life and I'll play it until I'm told I can't anymore, to be honest. Um, yeah, it's, that's, that's the perfect transition really, because that was, that was it. That was, that was the end of the highway hockey league. I never played another, another game in it. I did start playing, you know, just intramural hockey at U of R and, um, some beer league hockey. And, and then I moved to Edmonton in, in 06 and, so played in a couple of different leagues uh, here throughout my 30s. Um, and over the last five or six years, I've now played for uh, like a charity team in, uh, in, in Edmonton. We've got a few celebrities that, well, celebrity quotation finger layers, celebrities that play with us, Ryan Jesperson and Dustin Nielsen and Tom Gazzola and Min Darwa and some of the media guys from Edmonton that, play on our team so that's where i've kind of uh focused my time is with them and we help raise money for the stallery that's um, awesome so man. playing with the dirty birds is is where it's at and where it will be at for me until uh till i retire but i they needed a defenseman actually so once i left um regina and moved to edmonton i did some reason i don't know why i was always a decent skater um which is you know helped my hitting helped my center of balance i was never uh never a sniper i never scored bar down i never scored what off the snapshot you know all these stats that i balked off there 18 goals in 16 games in my second year midget those 18 goals probably didn't travel nine feet combined <laughs> i was johnny on the spot um but i was that player that hey, I they had, all count I, I mean, there's no pictures on look, the score sheet. Ryan Smith scored almost 400 goals in his 19 seasons in the NHL. And I mean, I would have to go back and look at all of them, but I would guess that of the 386 goals he scored in the league, would it be fair to say that 300 of them were scored in or close to the blue paint? No doubt about it. And I couldn't argue that for a second if I wanted to. And that's exactly how I did it. But I also did it. The I was also Yamamoto. 
right? Like I, I was smaller. I was hitting you off the puck. I was lifting your stick. I was a tenacious. I was like a pain in the ass to play against. And right. because of that, I'd come out of the corners with the puck. Well, you know, when, when I tried out for AAA midget and, and the dub and played junior B, like I said, I was always the second or third or fourth toughest guy. Well, that doesn't get you anywhere. Right. And so to become a scorer, like I could always put the puck in the net. It was never fancy. Um, but playing beer league, I mean, you can just adjust to whatever league. And I never played div one or anything, you know, we always played div five and even the dirty birds. Now I think have gone down to div 10 or div 11 as we've all approached our late thirties and forties, but, um, they moved me back to defense. So I was, you know, using that decent skating ability. I always had, I was one of the only guys in beer league that could skate backwards well enough. So I became that guy. And, uh, you know what? It's funny because when I was trying to learn defense, it's you watching the game skating backwards. It's a completely different perspective. And like, it's really taught me a lot about how and what to look for when I watch in the games now, you know, when I'm evaluating Cody CC and Duncan Keith and, and I see Duncan Keith making bad pinch decisions and that is, doesn't look confident in his timing. And, and that when he makes his cut or makes his pinch that, that is, he doesn't have the edge work anymore to be able to combat a guy coming at him the other direction. And that, that type of stuff I've learned by playing now defense for the last 10 years in beer league. So I don't, yeah, I do. Okay, man. I'm, I'm a point of game player still and you know, in my forties against 20 year olds and 30 year olds. And from the back end, I've always led our team in, in scoring from the defense position. And, you know, I like to dish them and bomb them from the point and go back door more than I like to do anything else nowadays. Uh, well, the drop in the gloves is certainly a lot fewer and far between. I'd be lying if I said I haven't dropped the gloves as a dirty bird, but um, maybe save, save, <laughs> save that story for the next time you're back on the podcast. And we'll, uh, maybe we'll me dropping that. the gloves for a charity team. Isn't a story I tell on a podcast. <laughs> maybe not. But, uh, you know, speaking of Yamamoto, who you mentioned a minute ago, he actually scored the game winning goal shorthanded tonight as the Oilers wrapped up their preseason with a three, two win over the Canucks. So good to see Yamamoto get a goal tonight and hopefully he can carry that confidence into the regular season. I know he uh, was a little banged up earlier this week too. I think uh, he he got hit in the head and uh, missed a few days of practice, but good to see him back on the ice and to score a big goal for the Oilers. So I'm uh, I'm hoping that he's going to, like I said, carry that momentum into the regular season. And I think that's a great time for us to transition now into talking about uh, how you became a fan of the Oilers as well. You know, um, Dash, was it as simple as you just you're from Edmonton or did you have a family member that cheered for the Oilers? How did you become a fan of the team? Yeah, it's pretty much as simple as that, to be honest. Like, you know, I said, we didn't move to Saskatchewan until I was seven or eight. And, um, you know, that was the mid eighties. So the Oilers had already become an NHL franchise and that had just kind of started happening right before we left. So yeah, I, I was an Oilers fan because I was told I was an Oilers fan, just like a lot of us, right? You, you just come out of the womb and that's what you're going to be or got a lot of great, I guess not out of the womb because I'm adopted, but uh, you know, <laughs> they signed the papers and maybe that was part of the contract, but <laughs> You know, my, uh, my family just watched Hockey Night in Canada every Saturday. I remember sitting on the couch with my dad while he laid and me sitting in behind his legs. I remember him telling me, like, you watch this Wayne Gretzky. You watch these players. This is this is special hockey. This is something that, you know, we've never really seen before. And I just remember him being so taken aback by how special that 
that decade of dominance was. And so, yeah. you know, yeah, I just caught fire with it as, as we, you know, moved to, moved to Prince Albert, the, the Oilers were winning cups. And so it was fun. Yeah. Like it, in Prince Albert, you don't have a team in Saskatchewan to cheer for. So it was still the Oilers. And, you know, my sister collected all the newspaper clippings and the Wayne Gretzky Barbie and, it was just a family of Oilers fans, and and we still are, to be honest. So That's yeah, awesome. that was kind of how I became the fan. And you know, I'm jealous of anyone who was around in the '80s to watch those glory year teams because I was born in 1989, so I missed basically the entire dynasty. I was born in time for the fifth cup, but obviously a year and a half old, you're not going to remember that. Um, and I was actually born just about five months after the Gretzky trade. So yeah, it's you know I I've I feel like now getting to watch McDavid and Dreisaitl is the closest thing that anyone my age or, or younger would have come to what it was like to watch Wayne Gretzky in his heyday. So it, it was obviously a very special time, I'm sure, even though you were a young fan, to get to witness all those cups and those those glory years. But um, do you remember your first Oilers game that you ever attended at Northlands Coliseum? I do, yeah. It, it was... Um... It was in 1999, actually. It was right around that same time that I was playing in Dysart, and there was uh, a group of guys from my hometown in in Winyard that got a bus and just decided to take a bus to Edmonton and and go and watch a couple of games. And um, I remember the first one was against the Buffalo Sabers, and the reason I'll never forget that it was against the Buffalo Sabers was one we chanted "Rebound Rollison" the entire time, which <laughs> I never forgot ironic. because then we exactly ironically end up getting Rollison seven years he later takes us to a final. Yeah. And the other part of it is that my friend Rob proposed to his fiance that night. He was a Sabres fan and still is. And, uh, and ended up, um, yeah, getting married so you, to Jill. Were you disappointed? To Jill that were you disappointed well, you didn't get to see the dominator in that? Uh, I can't remember why he wasn't there, to be honest. There was some sort of, I think he was maybe injured or or something like that. But Because he um, won the Hart Trophy that year. That was his second straight MVP. So obviously getting to see arguably the best goalie of all time or one of them uh, during his one of his MVP seasons would have been a pretty special memory. Well, Eric, let's be honest. They don't start your best player and your best goalie against the Edmonton Oilers back those days. You know what, so, though? That, those especially late on 90s, the road in Edmonton. <laughs> yeah, those late 90s, early 2000s team, for what they lacked in talent, they really made up for in grit and tenacity. And that was a team that, you know, really played that lunch bucket style that the people of Edmonton love. And um, that was th- those were the, the first teams that I really remember watching as a young Oilers fan. So they, they will always have a, a special place in my heart, those Doug Waite, Ryan Smith, Bill Guerin teams. For sure. Yeah, me too. Me too. And uh, let me, now that we've talked about uh, your first ever memory watching the Oilers at Northlands, uh, what is your favorite memory of watching the Oilers, whether it be on TV or one that you watched in person at the arena? Oh, that's hard to narrow down to the favorite, to be honest. Um, I'll give you two. Um, my probably fourth or fifth time ever getting to see the Oilers was uh, also at Northlands. And um, that night, there was when I bounced at Checkers, there was always, you know, when you're in Edmonton, you walk down the street and you see with somebody with an Oilers hat on, it ain't no thing, right? Like everybody's wearing an Oilers hat. 
but in Regina, you'd noticed when somebody else was wearing something Oilers. It's just it was unique enough. And this guy came to the bar all the time with this Oilers hat on. And I always noticed and he always noticed mine. And in one day we end up talking and it turns out that he's the nephew of our video coach. And so he says, man, one of these days I'm going to go to Edmonton and you can either meet me there or come with me and and I'll take you to a game. Well, sure enough, I was in Edmonton for something for school and he happened to be going. We found that out one night at the bar. Um, so we didn't sit together in the game, but ended up getting to meet up and he got me into the dressing room that night. And so it ended up being George LaRock's only career hat trick. So being getting to go into the dressing room, watching the media scrum around George, watching that wide eyed grin and that smile that that man could produce. Never mind the size of that smile after he scored his only career hat trick. Um, and the cool thing about it was because of all the guys surrounding George for an interview, Dougie Waite was just sitting off in the corner. Nobody's talking to him. So I waddled over and got my Doug Waite jersey autographed. I still got that, you know, to Mike and um, the friend that I met at the game, the video coach printed off um, a couple copies of the game sheet for me. And I got George to autograph one of them. I got George to autograph my ticket from that night. Um, so that was really memorable just because I got to be in the dressing room while they were celebrating a win. You know, there's not too many people that get to experience that. So that was incredibly, incredibly unique. Um, my favorite memory, I think, if if I had to have a gun to my head, would be the Daharne goal in overtime um, in the playoff run. What year was that? 17? Yeah, in 2017 against the Sharks. Because we, we're season ticket holders. And so at the, that season, we had uh, row five um, right in the corner, pie-shaped section, you know, so there's only four, four, four seats in the row ahead of me and four seats in that row ahead and then two seats and then two, three seats and then two seats. So there's like literally only seven of us in that little point of the pie. And I don't know if you remember that goal, but I'll never forget it. And it got comes the puck comes down the boards from the D which is you know important because that's right where we were sitting so right down in front of us dry sidle stick handling in the corner like dry sidle only can do the sauce pass to Daharney who's pinching in to the top of the circles and the hash marks fires it past him we win and basically dry sidle just stood where he made the sauce pass from in the corner and left his back up against well the the glass while the team kind of skated over to him to celebrate into that corner. And you go back and look in videos and I can recognize myself. You'd never know it if someone didn't point it out, but our whole little point of our pie, those eight, seven or eight guys, we all smashed into the boards with dry sidle. Like my face was three inches from dry sidle's face as he is celebrating. And That's OT awesome. Man. And he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and Daharney's looking up at us. We're screaming and pounding <laughs> on the glass. Like I felt like I was on the ice celebrating that goal with those guys in overtime to, to advance in the playoffs. Like just, just an unbelievable memory yeah. there, but man, so many in between so many in that... between as a season ticket holder. Like I was there for, Nuge's first hat trick. I was there for Yakupov's first goal, which was also the same night as Justin Schultz's first goal. I was there I for that. the 
Linus Olmark debut and the Spinorama shootout in overtime versus Tampa Bay. And I remember the Yakupov slide versus Calgary. I remember, uh, oh, what's the goalie we traded for Cassian? Uh, Scrivens? Ben, ben Scrivens? Scrivens when he had the 59 save shutout. Yeah, my wife and I were like fifth yeah. row for that. Like he was, you could see it on his face, man. Like that kind of stuff where, you know, we're that close to the ice that you can see the passion and feel the passion along with them. Those are the memories that I really cherish the most. That's awesome, man. And you know, that, that day, Harnagel, it was probably the biggest goal since Pisani's overtime shorthanded winner in game five of the 06 Stanley cup final. So we're talking 11 years and that, that was just an incredible moment for Oilers fans to have just a playoff OT winner to, yeah, to remember for an entire generation of fans who hadn't seen a goal like that or, or seen their team in the playoffs in a decade. So definitely very special for sure. And just the George LaRock hat trick, I think it, it was either February like 26th or 28th of 2000. I, I remember, um, I, I can't get the specific date, but I'm pretty sure that's the, that's around the time. That would make, and, that would make sense time-wise. And, for sure. and the other thing is George had a fight that night too. And he, so he had a, a hat trick plus, plus a fight. And I Is remember, that right? I remember they played the Kings. I don't remember him fighting. Yeah. Them. Well, the, the reason that I know this is because in early 2017, I moved to Toronto to go to grad school there for sports journalism. And the very night that I arrived in Toronto, the Oilers played the Boston Bruins that night and Patrick Maroon scored I believe his only hat trick in the national hockey league as well and had a fight. And I remember them saying on the broadcast that Maroon was the first oiler to have a hat trick and a fight in the same game since George LaRock did it 17 years earlier. So that that's, (laughs) that's, that's the only reason I can remember that he, uh, that he had a fight that night too. That's awesome. That's very cool. And it just, it just so happened that like, that was the game. I, I mean, it's the, the day that I, arrive in a new city for school so i mean just and then for a memorable game like that to happen it's it's one of those things that's just stuck with me um well that's awesome to find out a little more about not only your playing career which i appreciate you sharing so many great stories about but also just finding uh about your oilers background because at the end of the day this is an oilers podcast uh, you know, you talk about the Oilers a ton on your show as well, which we're going to briefly uh, move into now. Um, so just tell me about uh, straight off the pipe with with yourself and, and Mike Dursa, who's also a friend of mine and has been on this podcast several times. Um, how long have you known Dursa and what's been the experience like uh, co-hosting the show so far? Yeah, we'll talk in Oilers and talk in hockey. I guess that's what we get the big bucks to do, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know... It's, it's quite frankly about time you had me on your show. Um, <laughs> I know Durst has been on a few times, but I think you and he bear have been on like 15 times together. Oh, uh, more, more than that. I think, I mean, I, I, Michael uh, first had me on almost about three and a half years ago on his show. And then I've been hosting this, this show for two years now. So yeah, we, we've probably done North of 20 episodes together, I would say. And, and Durst has been on three times. So yeah, you're, you were definitely due to make your, uh, your debut appearance here on 99 forever. I was due. I was due. Well, Hey, save the best for last. Let's just, let's just go with that. I'm also the only um, one on the network who isn't named Michael. 
This is true, but you're the franchise. So <laughs> I don't know matter. about that. You can, you can call yourself whatever the hell you want, really. <laughs> um, you know, whatever. Us, uh, the rest of us are just lunch pails named Mike. I just grab <laughs> a pilsner, and I don't know um, about that, but I appreciate it. Uh, I don't know. So yeah, um, Durs, um and I, you know, we have a unique relationship. I think. Uh, Oh, we've been referred to as the old married arguing couple quite mm-hmm. a bit, which I guess I see when I, you know, check back and listen to a few episodes here and there. I, I just think his opinions are asinine sometimes. So he's fun, fun to argue with, to be honest. He's like tries to be this calm, stoic, you know, just gentle with the tide and right. everything. I don't know, man. Like I'm passionate. And I, you guys have good chemistry though. I, I like your, your combination of personalities fits really well. I think as an observer, well, I love to hear that. He, he probably keeps me off of a ledge a lot of times. <laughs> so that's probably not a bad thing. And maybe I make him think a few decisions through more than he normally would. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been fun doing that show, uh, together. We, we, um, you know, we're like Statler and Waldorf, the, the two old Muppets that just argue about what's going on. And, right. and I, I don't mind a challenge and, and he's pretty good at giving it to me too. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been fun. I think you just said you guys have done 20 episodes with or 19, 20 episodes with Michael and, and we just did episode 19 on Thursday. We're moving our, show to Sundays for the regular season. So we don't cross over with too many games and, uh, we'll be going Sunday nights around nine o'clock moving forward. Oh, how did I meet him? I like that poor boy was honestly like looking over my fence and looking through <laughs> the cracks in the fence. You know, he had his empty cup of coffee and just rattled it back and forth. <laughs> and they asked if he could pet my dog. Like, he's just such a sweet boy. You know, and I, <laughs> Felt bad for him, really, Eric, is what it came down to. And I'm sure when he listens to this, he'll. <laughs> I'm sure he'll love hearing that when he listens back to this episode. Ah, uh, you know, if we can get him to listen, he's guys, honestly, <laughs> so he's, he's uh, okay. He's. I just felt bad for him, is really what it came down to. He just, you know. I also like the trolling that you have. If if, if 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 anyone goes and checks Dash's Twitter account. Uh, at Dash in the Park, the park. <laughs> he, he uh, his location where he lives is rent free in Mike Durst's head. <laughs> this is true. This is true. And go check uh, out what Durst's location is because it's good too. But well, that's say it's 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 good living rent free. It's it's spacious. There's a lot of room. I, I can put my extended couch and hide a bed there. It's, it's great. that's awesome. Um, <laughs> Well, anyway, man, I'm, I, I really like the show that you guys have going and, uh, I I'd love to be a guest on it sometime too, if you can ever fit me in. So it's, uh, it's great that we're able to really start to expand the network here. And, um, yeah, you know, Michael's got his multiple shows going, uh, you know, with straight off the pike pipe in 99 forever. We've got, uh, we've got a lot of great, uh, content we're putting out there for all the listeners and viewers here at the heavy hockey network. So everyone, please keep checking out, uh, well, you're, you're doing yeah, a fantastic sure. job in the new role as our editor. And, you know, we've got some heavyhockey.com um, websites yeah. launched with some great articles there to read. So, yeah, man, we're, you know, bringing you bringing you hockey and bringing mm. it heavy, hopefully. This was a, a very busy and exciting week, obviously, with the release of uh, heavyhockey.com on Monday and, um, you know, getting that that content out and producing articles. We've got some talented writers that we're, we're looking forward to having 
articles put out for you guys on a regular basis and yeah it's just it's been a it's been an awesome week and um we'll be we'll be definitely getting more and more articles coming out as we get closer to the regular season next week but for now let's shift over to some oilers talk and you know yeah. i mainly i mainly want to focus tonight on the oilers and what it only took us uh an hour and a half to get to get to the the state of the team so i want to talk about the the mainly the forwards tonight and um I'll just get your thought on how much you think the Oilers have improved their forward depth with the additions of guys like Zach Hyman, Warren Fogel, Derek Ryan, and uh, a, a training camp standout, Brendan Perlini, who scored again tonight. Uh, give me your thoughts. What, how do you think uh, this forward group is shaping up as we get uh, closer to the start of the regular season on October 13th? Perlini, the Lamborghini. <laughs> He's uh, fit in well. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I like what I've seen of Fogel. I think he's been as advertised. He just skates well. He shoots well. He mucks it up. He's a good puck retriever. He's, I like him on the forecheck. He's good on the cycle. Same can be said about Hyman. Um, what's been done with the forward group has been very impressive. Um, with that said, I, I you know can't be forgotten that we've done nothing with our goaltending and very little with our defense, but thank God we have the best forward group that maybe since Mark Messier, Eric, Mm -hmm. I, I, I fail to think of a forward group of top six or top nine that the Oilers have been able to ice like this. And, you know, we're what we're getting Whack and here in the media for Tippett putting dry and McDavid together already. Well, Why? Like we, we're gonna have to do it in the regular season. It, it's gonna be done eventually. Why wouldn't we do it? In, in I think the main in, reason in they did that was to give Hyman an opportunity to play with Nugent Hopkins, so they could build a little chemistry. And obviously, uh, McDavid and Drysaitel had the night off tonight, so there, there's gonna be times where those two have to play together as well. So it doesn't hurt to have these these guys get used to playing together. And Tippett's already sort of uh, let the media know, and that those are gonna be. Uh, one of uh, one of his uh, pairings for uh, on the penalty kill. So it, it's great for Nugent and Hyman to spend a little bit of time together and hopefully build that chemistry as well, even if they're not going to be regular line mates. I think the way that it's going, it's going to be that way. You know, I, I really think that we're going to start the season the way that I've been seeing this play out and the way that my gut feels. I think Dreisaitl and McDavid are going to be on the same line. I really do. It, like, who would have thought that we brought in Hyman <sighs> for Nuge? We didn't bring in Hyman for McDavid. If, if you know, but you want me to speak to that group, like, great. If, if we can yeah. honestly finally play, you know, Low Tide said it on the air the other day that that's about as close as there is to a guaranteed goal in the NHL is when you put mm-hmm. 29 and 97 together. Well, well, if you've got that kind of bullet in your gun and you can throw a guy like Jesse Pujarvi, who looks like he's coming into his own, like a, just a beautiful butterfly now, you know, being able to dominate on the boards, I, I think his shots gotten better. I think he's faster. I, you know, double hip surgery behind him. Uh, he's 23 years old. He's growing into that man man's body now. If you can have Dreisaitl, McDavid, and Pajarvi together and have Nuge and Hyman develop any type of chemistry mm-hmm. and still plug in a Yamamoto or a Benson or a Fogel or a Perlini on that line, that's the maybe the best top six in the NHL. It, it's know, right up Der- there. Derek Ryan, I like him as a fourth line center. I really do. I think like making him a third line center puts him a NHL teams that win cups 
have the best fourth line in the league often. And we we have one of the best fourth line centers in the league in Ryan. Keep him there. I honestly feel that way because like if you can keep him solidifying a fourth line and keep 29, 97 and 13 together, and then you've come with a second line that still has, let's say, Yamamoto like they've had together, Nuge and Hyman. That still leaves you Holloway, Cassian, yeah. Benson, Perlini, Fogel right. to throw a third line together. So but now I don't Derek think Holloway is going to play this year. I, I, I mean, I think the injury has set him back that even when he is cleared to play in about two and a half months from now, I, I see him spending most of, if not the full season in Bakersfield, which is probably the best spot for his development. I don't think that they have to rush him to the NHL, even if he is close to being ready. It'll really depend on if he's a point per game player uh, at that level. And if the Oilers are looking for a little more scoring at third line left wing, but really I, I, if I'm not going to lose any sleep over it, if he spends the whole season down there. For sure. No, I, I, I and that think, goes for know, Broberg too. Like I, there will be injuries at some point this year. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if Broberg gets recalled and, and maybe he plays 10 to 15 games, but the best thing for these kids right now, because they're, 20 19 20 years old is for them to just be playing as many minutes as they can uh getting power play time getting penalty kill time down at that level and and succeeding in the ahl and once that they can prove that they're dominant players at that level that's when you bring them up because right now the oilers need to be pushing to contend for a stanley cup and i just think that having too many raw rookies on the team all at the same time is not a recipe yeah. for success. And we've seen that over the last decade as well. Yeah. And I can't disagree with you there. And I think that's probably why we are going to see Derek Ryan flop up into that third line center role um, from time to time and carry that third line. There's no doubt. Um, I expect you know, but you talk that, about the injuries and the bit. Yeah. Do you? Okay. I mean, well, well, we'll Ryan, what... I, I think Ryan McLeod, they were hoping that he would be the third line center, but he hasn't performed as well through training camp as they would have probably like so i think somewhere in the next year or two those two will flip-flop and 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 mcleod will become the third line center Derek ryan will go down to the fourth line center but i'm i'm pretty sure that ryan will be uh the third line center to start and the fact that he assisted on yamamoto's game winner tonight i think even helps his cause yeah well can't hurt it that's for sure well i, I have a hard time disagreeing with you there i think it's also the holland way you yeah. know, he loves to have his prospects. Um, Doesn't want to give them the anything. They have to earn everything. Yeah, which which is good that we finally have the depth with our organization that we can do that, right? And, you know, you talk about some of those younger players like the um, the Clouds and the Holloways and the Bensons and, you know, don't don't overlook Carter Savoy. And, you know, they've still, that still leaves Cassian and Perlini and Fogel and Colton Savoy and... You know, like there's, there's there's depth still, right? Like we've still got veteran players that we can put into that bottom six, but also give a AHL player a shot every once in a while, and yeah. and you know see if they can, you know, play above their heads and succeed expectations and and make the team. And I can see a Holloway or a McLeod doing that in that third line role eventually yeah. as well. Oh yeah, and the Oilers have a lot of forward prospects who are eventually going to be pushing their way up onto this lineup. But for right now, I mean, I'll agree with what you said. This probably is 
the best forward group the Oilers have had top to bottom in the last 30 years. I mean, they've got the two most dominant players in the league in McDavid and Dreisaitl, who should both be 100-point players again this year. I think you can say they're fairly safe bets for 40 goals, maybe even 50. Um, Nugent Hopkins is still in his prime. He He's always been a productive guy on the power play. His his even strength numbers dipped a little bit last year, but I expect him to to bounce back. Pugliarvi is now an impact player, and I expect him to take a step forward this season too. You got a guy like Yamamoto who is coming off a down year, but he was fantastic in 2019-20. So I think reuniting, reuniting him with Dreisaitl and Nugent Hopkins is going to be great for him. And that's another reason why I would have McDavid and Dreisaitl separate from each other. I think McDavid is going to do just fine with uh, Pugliarvi and Hyman. Um, they, we we saw how how good they looked, especially in that Seattle game earlier in the preseason. And, and mm-hmm. you know, speaking of Hyman, they're bringing in a guy like that now who was on pace for 29 goals in 82 games last year with the Leafs. He, he also mm-hmm. plays with a ton of grit. And, Both you know, he, sides. Yeah, he he can dig pucks out of the corner for McDavid. He can bury rebounds in front of the net. He's responsible defensively. So I think the Oilers' top six, like you alluded to, is probably one of, if not the best, in the league. And their bottom six should be able to perform fairly well. I think they've they've added yeah. more skill into the the depth lines than they've had in a long time. I mean, you look at a guy like Fogel. He's a player with twenty goal potential. Perlini yeah. could score ten to fifteen goals this year. Yeah. Um, Derek both Ryan, big, both fast, both yeah. can shoot. And, and ag- agreed. And, and look, Derek Ryan, he's going to be counted more for his defensive play and to win faceoffs. But I think he could chip in 10 goals as well. So when you look at this lineup overall, and also maybe Zach Cassian, I know he was hurt the other night, but if he's on top of his game, you'd hope that that's a guy who could score 10 to 15 goals. Yeah. So when I when I look at this group overall, especially from the the back end, a guy like you know Darnell Nurse, Tyson Berry, these guys who can produce offense, I, I think the Oilers could have as many as five twenty goal scorers this year. But maybe even more impressively would be is if the team could score three hundred goals uh, as a group, which would be the first time they've done that since nineteen eighty nine ninety when they won their last yeah. cup. And yeah. you look at that, I mean. Uh, some quick math on the fly here, 300 goals in 82 games would be an average of 3.66 goals per game. I think that this team should be able to average three and a half to four goals a game with the, the amount of skill they have up front. Let's, let's not forget McDavid and Dreisaitl are in their absolute prime right now. And, um, Mm -hmm. You know, w- with the with the supporting cast they've been able to put around them, I really wouldn't be surprised if this team uh, either gets there or gets close to 300 goals. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think it's going to be potent. It's going to be 80s barn burner hockey. We just don't have <laughs> Grant Fear to help us win by one. You know? Yeah, and, and you know, I'm yeah. I'm not as down on the defense and the goaltending as as some people are. I, I know that a lot of people, a lot of uh, Oilers observers and fans think that uh, you know the, the defense is is going to be the the reason that this team doesn't go as far as they could this year. But I, I think Duncan Keith has more to give than some people do. I, there, I think there's still some gas in the tank there. Uh, Tyson Berry. We can argue well, like Durst yeah. and I do. If you want because that's <laughs> a, no, a whole lot I disagree with there. Yeah. I, I am 
very concerned well, about the D, but sorry to interrupt. No, no, of course, fair enough. And, and I mean, Tyson Berry, you know, he isn't known as much for his defensive play, but I mean, he's was the leading scorer in the league among defensemen last year. You've got a guy like Evan Bouchard coming in, who's an elite young uh, um, defensive player. And I just think Cody Cece hasn't been as great in the preseason, maybe as we would have liked to see, but uh, let's hope that he's just uh, ironing out a few things and he can have the type of season he had in Pittsburgh last year. I just don't think it's going to be as bad as some people think. And of course, we haven't even mentioned Darnell Nurse, who was seventh in Norris Trophy voting last year. Uh, he he is turned into you know one of the top 10 to 15 defensemen in the NHL, despite... Um, Mm-hmm. how some people are still underrating him. So mm-hmm. I, and, and of course with the goaltending, you know, we, there's, yeah, some people are really doubting what Miko Koskinen is going to be able to do. I, I think he didn't inspire much confidence last year. And there's concerns about Mike Smith being a year older. Now he's going to be 40 years old in March. I just think that they're, they're going to try and probably add a goaltender at some point, probably at the trade deadline. But if those two guys can, can play to their abilities. We saw Koskinen with a 917 save percentage two years ago. If if those two guys can even give the Oilers slightly above average goaltending, they the the team should be able to score enough goals on a night to night basis where they're going to win a lot of hockey games. Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree with most of that. I I don't have an issue with Nurse as a number one. I don't have an issue with Barry as a number two. I don't have an issue with Bouchard as a number five. Um, hopefully he's better than that and could be a number four. I have the problem with the rest of it. Um, I, I think Keith and CC are number five, six defensemen, and we're going to ask them to play a three, four role. Um, if you actually break down Cody CC's time in Pittsburgh, he played a lot of sheltered minutes. Uh, he didn't play against a lot of top pairings. Um, his time on ice in Toronto went from, you know, the low twenties to in Pittsburgh down to 16, 17 minutes. Um, maybe CC will be on the third pair by Christmas and ideally, yeah, you don't want a guy making over $3 million a year on the third pair. But if Evan Bouchard just continues to play the way that he has, he scored a goal tonight too against the Canucks. What if he works his way up to the top four by Christmas? And by the time the playoffs come, what if he's the guy and he supplants Tyson Berry yeah. on the, the top pair with Darnell nurse. So you've got, you've got Bouchard making under a million dollars a year for the next two seasons. I, I think that that is going to be a big time value contract for the Oilers. Yeah. I, and I can't disagree with that either. Um, Bouchard becoming a first pairing defenseman is uh, let's hope so. Um, that's, well, that's, his, that's his upside. But I, I mean, that's, that's, that's the upside. Where, you know, when you pick a guy 10th overall and, you know, I think Bob McKenzie had him going fourth overall that year, but with other teams picking forwards, he fell to the Oilers at 10th. So you're getting a, you're getting a, a pretty special young player at that spot. Yeah. Well, I remember there was Ty Smith and Quinn Hughes and, you know, there's quite a few potent defensemen that were all available right around there. And I remember there being a lot of talk about which defenseman it'll be. Um, and again, I, I do see that as his top uh, potential and and being a first pairing defenseman as well. But <clears throat> what I what I'm fearing, I guess, is uh, him having to take that big of a role too soon 
which we've seen with some of the other defensemen, um, you know, Justin Schultz and and Petrie in the past. So I'd like for him to be able to get there when he's ready to be there. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in order to do that, we need Keith and Cece to fill that role. And and you know, you said that Bouchard's top end is to play on the first pair, and you right. said that he might uh, be a second pairing defenseman by Christmas. Eric, I'll bet half my life savings that he's a second pairing defenseman in about a month. I I I I think CC looks confused out there. I think he looks quite uncomfortable. Um, I think he had pretty heavily protected minutes in Pittsburgh, and for him to go and try and step in and be in a three or a four again, I think is a mistake. And so now we need Bouchard to take yeah. a step forward instead of hoping that Bouchard will take a step forward. Yeah, and I mean, the guy's only played, I think, 21 games in the NHL, so it's it, there are still going to be lessons to learn for a guy like that. And, yeah. you know, he turns 22 next month, or later this month, I should say. So, yeah, um, yeah it, it's, a, it's, a young, it's a young guy, but a guy with a very high ceiling and someone who should be an impact player for the Oilers for many years to come when they're competing and hopefully winning Stanley Cups. Uh, let's talk about the power play now. This is a very cool. <laughs> this is a very uh popular topic to talk about in oil country the oilers have had the the best power play in the league in each of the last two seasons and in, in 2019 20 they had the most dominant power play in more than four decades dash should we just expect the oilers power play to be at the top of the league again this season and who would be your starting five I, I, Durs and I talked a little bit about this on the show on Thursday. I, I honestly think it could get better still. Well, if that's not asinine for me to say. Like they had the best power play in the history of the NHL two years ago. Best, not history, forty years, forty some yes, years. So we're like, wow, look at this! Yeah. What an accomplishment! And then the next year it gets better again, and now. Man, the way we we play the one three one better than perhaps anybody in the history of hockey. This may go down as the best power play in the history of hockey. Wayne Gretzky and whoever Mario Lemieux and Yager take your pick at whoever ran a fabulous power play back in the day. I'm sorry, you take Connor McDavid right now with his training, his nutrition, his coaching, his equipment, and you put him in 1985 hockey. Connor McDavid's a ten point a game player. I'm not even kidding. Well, I mean, it's so and hard to say so, from different eras, right? Too. I mean, I, I think that if you were able to take Wayne Gretzky in, you know, 1985 and bring him to present day, give him modern nutrition training. But that's what I'm saying. He, in a he would dominate that way too, right? Yeah, agreed, agreed. But he didn't have that nutrition then. He didn't. That right? Gretzky didn't play that way. So I'm telling you, you put Connor McDavid right now in the DeLorean and you send him 88 miles an hour down the road to 1985, and he gets nice out of that reference too, <laughs> <laughs> and goes and plays hockey against those guys with their goalies, with yeah. their equipment, with their and and Connor gets to take everything he has with him. He mm-hmm. he he may get ten points a game, and I'm not exaggerating. So my point in saying that is, is that we've got the best player potentially in the history of the universe. You know, Gretzky is the great one, and in my opinion, McDavid plays a better game of hockey than Gretzky ever did. And we've got Drysital right beside him. So now we've got potentially the two best players in hockey on the same power play. Both of them are potentials for forty or fifty goals. 
And both of them are better passers than scorers and have potential for 40 or 50 goals on the same power play. Now you've got those two guys with Nuge. Who do you want running a half wall in the NHL if it's not Connor McDavid or Nuge or Dreisaitl? It ends up being Nuge and Connor most of the time. And those are two of the niftiest players, both first overall picks. And then you got Dreisaitl in the middle who can play with both sides of his stick. He's as good as on his backhand as he is on his forehand. He's a Rocket Richard goal, goal scorer, award winner. And now, instead of having a James Neal or a chase on for our net front presence on the one, the one three one and the one portion down low, we've got a Jesse Piarvi who's becoming one of the best puck retrievers and impact players in hockey right now, or Zach Hyman. Oh, right. well, then we look at the the high side one on our one three one, and you look at the defenseman, well, Nurse or Barry. Oh, and we still have Bouchard, dude. Yeah. Like, we've got everything we had before except they've got more experience they've played better oh and they've got new toys to play with and the nhl is supposed to be calling more penalties i, I honestly well, think that this might be I, the best hope. power play again in the history of hockey yeah Eric, and i'm not even exaggerating no we we can only hope the league is going to start calling more penalties and i mean it was ridiculous in the playoff series against the jets where mcdavid didn't draw a single call and um, or the Black Hawks, seven straight playoff games. McDavid yeah. has not drawn a penalty. He's, he's seven absolutely, games. He's just getting mugged out there, and he can't draw one to save his life. But now it looks like, at least in the preseason, the refs are calling a few more. Let's just hope that that continues in the regular yeah. season. Maybe it'll only last a month or two. But I've always said, if if the officials could even just call half the infractions that yeah. occur against McDavid, the Oilers would get at least five power plays a night. And if they yeah. get those five power plays and score on, let's just say two of them, you know, two yeah. out of five, then this this team is going to win a lot of games just on their special yeah. teams alone. And hopefully they can keep the puck out of the net um, with, with their penalty kill as well, which has also been very strong the last two years. Yeah. Um, I want I to just look at the, the five that that I think will be out there as well. I mean, obviously McDavid and Dreisaitl are the automatics and Nugent Hopkins is pretty much a sure thing too. And before, before McDavid came to town, he was the guy who, who ran the power play from the half wall. Mm -hmm. So I, I think Tyson Berry as the, as the defending leading scorer amongst defensemen in the NHL, he deserves to get that first look Mm -hmm. there. And I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point this year Bouchard either is splitting duty or maybe <laughs> takes the job away from him. But to start, it will be Tyson Berry's job. And maybe that does block his his path a little bit in terms of what Bouchard's absolute skill set is. And that is to be the guy who can hammer the puck from the point, which is how he scored his power play goal tonight. And he he's so smart. Like his his yeah. hockey sense, his hockey sense is right up there already as one of the best on the team, despite playing, yeah. you know, so few games in the NHL. And I think he's going to be a great distributor of the puck, not just yeah. in the offensive zone on the power play, but he's also going to be able to zip those tape to tape stretch passes and create a bunch of breakaways for McDavid over the next 10 years. Um, and then as the net front guy, Zach Hyman to me is the, the obvious uh, pick to start. It, it gives you not only a right shot guy, which the Oilers need another right shot on the power play, but he, he is just so effective at tipping pucks and deflecting shots. 
and he's going to clean up a lot of the garbage in front of the net, very much like Ryan Smith. You know, Ryan Smith never got the chance to play with Connor McDavid, but I always felt like if you could take prime Ryan Smith from the mid-2000s and bring him to present day, this is what it would look like. So uh, could Jesse eventually take that spot too? Yes. We, we might see another scenario like what I just said with Barry and Bouchard where they're sort of trading off as the, the net front presence. But, uh, you know, Jesse looked pretty good when he got uh, an opportunity to play that role on the power play last year too. So there's going to be competition for spots. And when you have such a dominant power play, um, it's nice to know that there's these other options that you can put out there. And it, it, it isn't just McDavid and Dreisaitl who, although they are the, the, the leading men on that power play with, with the obvious cross ice one-timer McDavid and Dreisaitl play that they love to go to, that mm-hmm. now there are other options. They, they have that big shot from the point who that Bouchard can rip. Um, there are going to be more, uh, loose pucks in front of the net that get buried so yeah i'm really excited to see this group and dash i'll make a prediction right here i think the oilers will have uh will be 35 percent efficiency on the power play this year and that might wow. not be That's that awesome. might not like that i'm pretty sure that the 1978-79 islanders hold the unofficial record because they didn't track power play percentage yeah back in the 60s and 50s so the 1950s montreal canadians when they won five straight cups they might have actually had the best power play of all time but we we won't know because that information isn't available to us but as of right now you look at what the the islanders were able to do in the late 70s i think there it was 31 point something and that's the, the currently the high watermark. But I would not be surprised if the Oilers shatter that this season and get something closer to 35%. Yeah. Well, you talk about the five on the power play. like, But in order to talk about the five, don't you have to talk about the 10? Because ultimately, um, you know, putting the five best out there yeah. to me is Dreisaitl, McDavid, Poyarvi, Hyman are the same to me. They really are. And Barry. So with Nuge. Yeah. So if that's if that's your best five, that's okay. But then your second power play has, but you know, Hyman, if, Yamamoto, whatever. My so my point is is like, if you can pull Nuge off of that top power play, and you still have McDavid and and Drysital doing their thing, and you ha- still have Barry and um and Pliarvi, you know maybe that other forward becomes like, wouldn't it be awesome if Lamborghini Perlini could take that spot or something because then that leaves Nuge Hyman nurse for the second unit. And now I know that that first unit plays a minute and a half, but we still need a second power play unit. And I liked what you said earlier about keeping Nuge and Hyman together because they penalty kill together. Well, if you can also keep them together on the second power play unit, that's a lot easier to run a bench. It is, but yes, Dash, I, I think you and I can. Well, I don't know. Maybe we can't agree on this, but the Oilers, they they technically have a second power play unit, but they don't really have a second power play unit. The yeah. the oil the Oilers when when they're clicking, they're going to score right away on the power play, as we've seen over the past couple of years. And if if the other unit is going to get on the ice at all, it's probably going to be the last twenty thirty seconds at most of the at the end of the power play. So 
having a second unit is is more just like a thing that they have on paper, but it's not something that <laughs> is is really going to be a factor for this team too much. I I think that That's this. Fair. The, the first unit is going to do so much damage that it's not even really necessary to have a second unit. And from what I remember last year, when the, when the second unit even did get on the ice, McDavid would usually still stay out there for the full two minutes. So if they yeah. are go, if they are going to pull the other four guys on the ice, I would still keep him out there. Yeah. Yeah. Which means pretty much no matter what, for a full two minutes of every power play, we are just bringing heat. Oh, absolutely. Um, and just to wrap up the show tonight, I want to talk about, uh, well, the first article that I put out for heavyhockey.com, which was our first ever article on the site on Monday. And we've now, um, Ryan previously from oil drops has put out another article about Tyler Benson, but the article I wrote was on who will finish third in Oilers scoring this year? Because you know we all know McDavid and Drysaitel, if healthy, are going to be not only the Oilers' top two scorers, but very likely the top two scorers in the league again this year. And they have a chance to become the first set of teammates to finish top uh, two in scoring in the National Hockey League for three consecutive years since Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito from 1972 through 1975. So very elite company they're in. Not even Gretzky and Curry, nor Lemieux or Yager were able to do what Dreisaitl and McDavid are doing right now in terms of dominating the league as as a duo. And I just, I, I think that there are several options for who could be the third leading scorer on the Oilers. I pointed out four in my article, those being Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Zach Hyman, Tyson Berry, and Jesse Pugliarvi. I want to get your thoughts. Do you think one of those four will do it, or do you have an off-the-board pick? No, it's one of those four. Um, I don't agree with you that it'll be Nuge, uh, although I do agree with your argument and how you got there. Um, what I've seen in the preseason, it tells me it's going to be Jesse. Um, if you'd have asked me this, a month ago, I would have had a different answer. In fact, I put out a poll on Twitter who was going to be the Oilers' third leading scorer, and I I, I flip-flopped the entire time through my own poll. <laughs> um, I, I can see why Hyman could get there if he's going to be playing with Nuge, Dreisaitl, or McDavid every single minute he's on the ice. I can see Nuge being that guy because, quite honestly, he's the third most talented Oiler. Um Quite simple. Um, could it be someone from the point, like a nurse or a Barry again, because of the the involvement in the D and and the way you know Nurse? You said Barry was a leading scorer in the NHL for points, but Nurse was a leading scorer in the NHL for goals amongst defensemen. So even you know, strength like, don't, goals, yes, right, yeah. So don't count that out either. But from what I've seen out of Jesse Poyarvi, man, he's he looks like a new player, whether it's that hip surgery that he's now through and stronger. He looks like he's skating harder, skating faster. He looks like he's shooting harder. Um, you talked about Ryan Smith on the power play earlier, and maybe that would be like this dream fit. Part of me wants to disagree with you because Ryan Smith couldn't go retrieve pucks in the corner like Zach Hyman and Jesse Poyarvi can. Um, he was good in the corners. I, Ryan Smith parked his ass in front of the net and got fed cross checks. That, that, you know, is a skill in itself. The way that they play this one, three, one, Jesse can bounce from the corner to the post and sometimes be in front of the net and sometimes be screening. 
But the difference in today's NHL is like you can't just sit there and let it bounce off you and hope to hammer home a rebound. Like that still works. But these guys almost try to pass the puck into the net now. And when you've got somebody like Jesse I, with that can park his big body in front of a goalie who can retrieve pucks out of the corner like he can, who who can possess the puck, try to take the puck off of Jesse this year. He he just looks like a new player to me. Well, just with wait that, a couple more years. When he gets into his mid late twenties and he realizes how strong he actually is. I mean, he's right. not just a he's not just a highly skilled player. He's a big body, and I think some people forget that he was a fourth overall pick. Like this guy has immense talent, and putting him with Connor McDavid, the best player of the world, what an opportunity for him to maximize his abilities. And uh, yeah. McDavid is, McDavid's always done well with big guys. I mean, even Milan Lucic, who wasn't a you know didn't live up to his contract, he had one really good year playing with McDavid at times. And Patrick Maroon might be McDavid's best winger in the NHL outside of. Leon Dreisaitl. So yeah, I, I think that Jesse's going to be a perfect fit for him for the next decade. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, just watching the progression, you know, I, I think he's had a good preseason. You talked about the the rocket from inside the blue line that Jesse pulled off. You talk about um, him scoring in the playoffs last year. Like the progression's there. You know, he's had a good preseason. He had a good playoffs. He had a good last season. And he's still getting better. He's still learning the chemistry. He's still, I I think it's nothing but up and up for Yessi. And that's my pick for the third leading score. Um, you, you look at who Dave Tippett puts on the ice when, when they need a goal and they're down by one. It, it's, it's Jesse with 29 and 97 so far. It's not Hyman. It's not. So the coach trusts him, which is huge on the Oilers and the way Tippett blends lines so i think if jesse's the guy that's on the ice at the end of the game jesse's the guy that gets a lot of the power play looks and he's always going to be on the ice with either 29 or 97 that's my pick bud it's not a bad pick and you know last year Puliarvi was on pace for 38 points in 82 games and that was after a slow start i think yeah. that he's to me he's a safe bet for at least 50 points this year i could see him being a 25 goal 50 point 55 point guy yeah uh really if it i i did end up picking nuge i think that he is going to have a big bounce back year and he he played fantastic alongside dry and yamamoto so i'm excited to see that trio reunited but if it's not him i i think zach hyman has a really good shot too you know he was on pace for 63 points last year playing with austin matthews in toronto now he's coming to an even uh, an even better line mate with McDavid, who is more of a passer even. And I think that he is going to take Hyman's game to another level. And yeah. Hyman's also Hyman's also going to help McDavid out too. I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but you know he's going to do a lot of the dirty work for McDavid and take away some of the defensive responsibilities too. And when you can have a guy who gets it on the forecheck like that and is such an elite forechecker and turns over pucks and is going to free McDavid up in good spots to get his shot off and to dangle around defensemen. I, I just think that the potential for for Hyman to get seventy points is there too. But I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised at all if he puts up at least sixty. And could we be surprised if it's a quarterback of the best power play in the history of the NHL? <laughs> like it could be that guy too, right? And so yeah. it's it's one of the funnest debates in hockey and with the Oilers right now. I really like I, I it, you could ask 10 different people, not 10 different, but you could ask five different people and get five different answers. Exactly. I, I think the biggest thing is, is that we know that the power play is going to be 
one of the Oilers' strongest weapons again this year. And with, with that cross-ice pass with McDavid, the, the defensemen have no choice but to skate towards him as he's driving towards the net because you have to respect his ability to burn them wide. So yep. as they as they drift towards him, that just leaves Leon Dreisaitl wide open in the high slot at the top of the circle. And it's at times it's almost like he's automatic from there. It's just, if he gets a clean look, it's in the back of the net. And I just think that with McDavid, the way he's able to bring those defensemen towards him, it it just shifts so much space. It creates so much space for dry settle to get that shot off. I can't wait to see them back on the ice and hopefully they're going to do what they've done to the Vancouver Canucks the past two games in the preseason. And that's beat them in the regular season home opener on Wednesday night. Yeah, buddy, let's do it. No doubt. Well, I think that's a great place for us to finish up tonight. Uh, Dash, it's been awesome talking to you. Um, Like I said, if you ever want me to hop on uh, your show with uh, Dursa as well, just let me know. But uh, I need a referee. It's been getting pretty (laughs) chippy lately. I've 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 tuned into uh, a, a few episodes. And I I, I kind of like it when it gets a, a little heated between you guys. The fire is is, is always uh, entertaining, and I'm sure all the the people who watch the live stream or, or listen to you guys really enjoy that as well. Well, at least he's not looking through my fence and asking to pet my dog <laughs> anymore. Well, I, I look forward to getting his response when he hears this episode too. But anyway, thanks again for being on the show tonight. And I did mention it earlier, but just remind people where can they follow you on Twitter. I'm at Dash in the Park on Twitter and Dash in the Park on Facebook and uh, straight off the pipe with Mike Dursa Sundays at nine o'clock. Thanks for having me, bud. This is uh, this has been a lot of fun. That's awesome. A lot of great stories tonight and uh, some some very uh, some very important things to talk about about the the team. It's uh, it's getting really excited, man. As we start to talk about the power play and all the different forward units they could have out there. It's, it's starting Ugh. to feel, it's starting to feel more real that, uh, after months of, of putting together this team in the off season, that we're only a couple days away from puck drop now. Yeah. Without a doubt, man, I can't wait. All right. Have a good night, buddy. Yeah. You too, man. Let's go Oilers. So for Mike Dashney, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 forever podcast. We're out.